0: Welcome to the Other Side of Midnight. This is Kinthea standing in for Richard C. Hoagland. We all know that I can't replace Richard, uh, but I'm standing in for him. He's out with a really bad migraine. So we have a wonderful show lined up for you tonight, very informative and in some ways kind of shocking. Um, The show is called 22 Years, What Have We Learned? And I want to read you a message from Richard. This week marks 22 turbulent years since the tragic and far-reaching terrorist attack of September 11, 2001. On the World Trade Towers, the Pentagon in Washington, and the deliberate downing of a third hijacked airliner over Shanksville, Pennsylvania that took place. In the wake of this almost unimaginable national attack, two major investigations into what really occurred on 9 were launched and several independent 9-11 research groups formed. One of those, the Lawyers' Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, describes its own independent inquiries into 9-11 thus. The official explanation of the event's on and surrounding 9-11 has not been established in a court of law, or by an objective and thorough investigation by either Congress or the 9-11 Commission. Our overall mission to develop and implement a detailed legal strategy to achieve transparency and accountability under the law regarding the unprosecuted crimes of 9-11. In the aftermath of September 11, 2001, the Congress initiated a joint inquiry, and the government eventually also created the 9-11 Commission to investigate and explain what had occurred. Almost immediately, and in the years thereafter, serious questions were raised about both the Joint House and Intelligence Committee's inquiry and the 9-11 Commission's version of the events surrounding 9-11. Many observers, including notably the families of the victims, criticized both inquiries for failing to address key questions. And now we have the Hiroshima-like destruction of Lahaina, former 19th century capital of the Hawaiian Empire which, in terms of forensic evidence, exhibits several startling parallels with a mass destruction witnessed and recorded in New York on 9-11. Tonight, after over a generation of investigation, testimony, and analysis, my guests, the chairman of Lawyers Committee 9-11 Inquiry, Barbara Honiger, and two of her colleagues, and the committee will discuss not only the current state of their ongoing legal challenges to the accepted truths surrounding 9-11, but where the investigation goes from here and possibly new forensic evidence indicating a potential 9-11 Maui connection. So I want to welcome you all again, our wonderful guests tonight. We're going to start off with Barbara Honiger, She's a frequent uh, guest on the show, and I'm sure many of you know her, but if you don't, you should know her. Her website is lc 911org That's for Lawyers Committee for 9-11.org. Barbara Honegger has served in high-level government positions, including White House policy analyst, special assistant to the president for domestic policy, director of the attorney general's law review at the department of justice and for more than a decade was a senior military affairs journalist at the naval postgraduate school the premier science technology and national security affairs graduate research university of the department of defense barbara is the chairman of the board and investigative researcher with a Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Since September 11th, she has been a leading author, documentarian, public speaker, and major activist on the events of 9-11 with an emphasis on the Pentagon attack and anthrax attacks, including presentations and speaking tours in the US, Europe, and Canada. Welcome to the other side of midnight, Barbara. <laughs>
1: Hi, Cynthia.
0: Hi. I'm we grateful wish- to have you on. Folks, I just have to say that I attended the Zoom that Barbara's going to tell you about, and it was an awesome event that Barbara produced, and uh, well worth it. And, and by the way, I'm curious, can they access those talks?
1: Oh, absolutely. In chat can you hear me, Cynthia?
0: Yes, I can.
1: Yeah, I wanted to just start by wishing Richard Hoagland speedy recovery.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes, of
0: course.
1: Well, so, um, and I hope you're listening Richard. This should be a very very important show. Um yes, the answer to your question Cynthia is in my first item if I understand your question correctly. Yes. So, uh, if if everybody goes to let's see, if you could just remind people how yes. to get Okay, my
0: so first of all, obviously if you're on your computer, you might be listening to this on the radio, but if you're on your computer, go to the other theothersideofmidnight.com, and you're going to click on the show, 22 Years, What Have We Learned? And if it's not tonight, you can go into the show archive, and you'll find it there. And then throughout the page, several places, you're going to find what we call fast links. So you'll see... A it looks like a little pyramid of links, and you'll find Fast Link to Items. Click on Barbara, and it'll take you right there. So okay. your first item. Go ahead, Barbara. Right. So my very first
1: item is the answer to your question, Katia. Um What you see in uh, my item number one under my items, show items, um, is to begin with the banner is what we call it. Um, it was the opening Zoom slide for our Lawyers Committee for 9/11 Inquiry 2023 anniversary online event, and that was held a week ago tomorrow, last Sunday, September 10th, the day before the, the 23rd and 23rd anniversary, 22nd, 22nd
0: anniversary. 22nd, yeah.
1: Yeah, 22nd anniversary, 2023 anniversary, and. Um, So there is a link there to the video. It's four hours. It's four hours, but it is four hours. I know that's a lot today to ask people to watch, but, um, you know, maybe you can let people know why they should watch it, Cynthia.
0: Well, first of all, I want to point out it's multiple speakers. So like each speaker is on for 15 to 20 minutes. So you can take it you know, in bite sizes. You don't have to sit and watch four hours at one time. That's right. And each speaker brings something to the topic, which you may not have considered before. Either they're updating, there's all kinds of new information that I heard and new speakers that I hadn't heard before. And it's creating like a radiating arc out Connecting the dots, not only for 9-11, but the dark forces behind 9-11 and their other trail of breadcrumbs, including anthrax and now possibly Maui. And COVID. And COVID, yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so under my items, um I would especially um refer you, because I'm the guest tonight, but that's not the only reason, um, to my presentation. And I give you the time in, Um, you can use the button on the time bar at the bottom and you can go anywhere. If you go to time mark 58 minutes and 29 or 30 seconds, 58 and a half minutes, um, you will have my 24 minute presentation, which is mind bogglingly important. And it's 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 initially followed, immediately followed by about a 20 minute, 22 minute presentation By the world's foremost experts on bioterrorism, biowarfare, and anthrax, amongst many other things, attorney and professor of international law, Francis Boyle. And Francis Boyle's presentation will chill you. It will chill you. So the gist of my presentation, you you know, we might want to go into it a little bit more uh, when we go into the details about what we now know about 9-11 that's new. Um, but the, the essence of my presentation is that the anthrax attacks that were linked to 9-11 by the mainstream media, but the official claim of the U.S. government is that they have nothing to do with 9-11, believe it or not, nothing. The official story is that the Bush-Cheney administration and the military and intelligence in this country had no idea that There was anything going to happen about anthrax until (laughs) October 4th, which is what, three weeks after 9 11 at least, almost a month after. However, my presentation goes on for 24 minutes with all the evidence, all the evidence, compelling, converging lines of evidence and facts that are undeniable that there were multiple anthrax links to the day of 9-11 itself. The government doesn't want you to know about. And the reason they don't want you to know about and never mention is because the government's own official story to this day is that the anthrax letter attacks, the most deadly of which were sent to two Democratic, no Republican members of Congress, Leahy and Dashiell, Senators Leahy and Dashiell, that were the most weaponized, militarized anthrax ever seen on the planet at one trillion spores per gram. And so aerosolized that they came out of the envelopes in their offices like a gas so that they would go into the lungs and be particularly deadly. The governments, our our own governments to this day's official story of the anthrax attacks, is that they were an inside job. The government wants you to believe that they were that the source of that highest ever weaponized anthrax. In the anthrax letters was from an army. They call it a biodefense facility, but it's actually a biowarfare research and development facility, Port Dietrich in Maryland. And they want you to believe that a man who was a virologist there. Um, microbiologist and virologist there, Bruce Ivins, was the Lee Harvey Oswald uh, but he was in, of the anthrax attacks, but he was in fact simply the fall guy, like Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, if the government wants you to believe, as they do to this day, that the anthrax attacks, the anthrax floater attacks were an inside job from the U.S. Army Biowarfare Facility, and if, you, and if anyone, and that's me, that's my research, can prove that there were multiple shocking anthrax links to the day of 9-11 itself, then that's effectively the government admitting inadvertently that 9-11 itself, the day of 9-11 itself was an inside job as well. And that's why my presentation is so important. And it's followed right after by Professor Francis Boyle, International Law Professor and one of the world's foremost experts on biowarfare, bioterrorism, and anthrax, and one of the things that he reveals, Cynthia, is that the real source of the anthrax, the militarized anthrax in the anthrax letters, wasn't that wasn't the army military biowarfare, biodefense facility they want you to believe, which was Fort Detrick and Fort Ivan. no. Our lawyers' committee for 9/11 inquiry, anthrax grand jury petition which was filed two years ago on September 11, 2021, a little bit over two years ago now, with the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. And our lawyers committee also sent a copy of our anthrax attacks grand jury petition to all 530 members of the House and the Senate of the entire U.S. Congress. Okay, so Professor Boyle, right after my presentation, where I proved, that there were multiple anthrax links to the day of 9-11 itself, shocking links. And I'll give you a couple of highlights here in a moment. But then Professor Boyle comes on, and he lets us know, he lets the world know, that the real army biowarfare facility, Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, is the true source of the anthrax in those weaponized anthrax letters. that went to Leahy and Dashell and members of the mainstream media, to terrorize the U.S. Congress, the anthrax-letter attacks to Senators Leahy and Daschle were the real assault and attack on the U.S. Capitol. And that was that was in um, September, October 2001, a very long time ago, long before January 6th of 2020. So Professor Boyle then comes on and says, guess what? Dugway Proving Ground, the real source of the anthrax, the deadly anthrax and the anthrax attack letters, the real source, Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, still has a massive stockpile of that very weaponized anthrax. And the real perpetrators are those inside jobs. The source is the U.S. Army, and they still have it. They have a huge stockpile of it. The real perpetrators are still at large, and they can do it again anytime they want. So those are the two presentations I think you should go straight to. Um, and that's in my item number one. In my item 1A is a sworn jurat affidavit that I did a few years ago of what I was told by Army, there's the Army again, Army Major and Doctor, as in PhD, uh, Doug Rocky, R-O-K-K-E. And um, Doctor and Army Major Doug Rocky told me in person, and this is in my sworn affidavit, sworn under penalty of perjury. It's an official California state document, which is what a notarized document is in the state of California, at least. Um, my sworn affidavit is about what Army Major Doug, Dr. Doug Rocky told me in 2007 at a 9-11 conference in Irvine, California. And there's a witness, and that witness was none other than Professor and physicist um, Stephen Jones, who was one of the two top uh, PhD physicists and professors of physics um, who did the analysis of the World Trade Center dust and proved that there is both exploded and unexploded military-grade and sulfurated nanothermite throughout the dust of the World Trade Center towers, Okay, which is, of course, proof of controlled demolition of the Towers and World Trade Center 7, which wasn't hit by any plane. So this sworn affidavit that I did about what Dr. Doug Rocky, Army Major, told me, what he told me, and this is shocking, and I swore it under penalty of perjury. You can read it right there. It's online. Um, Army Major Dr. Doug Rocky told me in front of Professor Stephen Jones, physicist Stephen Jones, 9-11 truth physicist Stephen Jones. He told the two of us in a tight circle at the end of the banquet for that 9-11 conference in Irvine, California in 2007, he told us both within about a foot and a half from our faces. We were in a very tight circle. And Doug Rocky told both of us that he knew the source of the anthrax and the anthrax letters, the militarized anthrax, and that it and that that source was um, the Redstone Arsenal, the Army's Redstone Arsenal, which is in Alabama. And that and I asked him. I said, "This is all in the affidavit that I swore before a notary public." I said, "Well, how do you know that?" And he said, "Well, I know that." Because the boys, they're called the Golden Boys, and they're also called Bowers Raiders, B-A-U-E-R, Bowers Raiders, at the Redstone Arsenal, they are my boys, and I trained them. And then, shockingly, in the presentation right after mine, at our Lawyers Committee event a week ago tomorrow, last Sunday, September 10th, and the... Link there to the video of all four hours is my item number one. In the presentation right after mine, Professor Francis Boyle reveals, and he and I learned about this only about a week before this event last Sunday. In In our telephone conversation in which we were preparing for him to also present at the event, we learned, I learned, that the same army major Dr. Doug Rocky said the same thing to Professor Francis Boyle whom he knew because they lived in the same suburb of Chicago Doug Rocky is no longer alive unfortunately as of a few years ago but army major Doug uh, Dr. Doug Rocky told exactly the same thing, with even more details to Professor Francis Boyle years before he told me, Stephen Jones. So we have, and then my item number 1B is I found online a video of a presentation by Army Major Dr. Doug Rocky in Seattle some, a few years ago, about a, about a decade ago, about... Uh, the Iraq War, but you will be able to see how honest and forthright and powerful a speaker that he is. He is a true whistleblower. So
0: uh, those are those that's to answer your question, Cynthia. Well, I like to point out what a magnet you are <laughs> <laughs> because you keep meeting up with these most amazing dot connectors. Yeah. Uh, you know, I really feel like it's divinely guided. It <laughs> it's is just divinely like, guided. Of all the people you oh, could be div- telling it to, you're someone who is putting it out there where it needs to be heard. And I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing this presentation. It's a whole other uh, octave of, of the question that I wasn't aware of before. Now, which presentation are you referring to there? The one from the, uh, Doug Roeke.
1: Oh, yes. Yes, now that's not directly related to 9-11, of course.
0: Um, but it is the anthrax about, connection. No, no,
1: no, it's about the Iraq War. Oh, he,
0: I really, okay, it was, sorry. It's
1: about, it's about the Iraq War, but I've added it as my item 1B because it's the one video of Army Major Dr. Doug Rocky that I found online. And it's also a phenomenally powerful video because um, Army Major Dr. Doug Rocky. Was the Pentagon's top expert on WMD, on bio bio uh, weapons, which includes anthrax, of course, on chemical weapons and on nuclear weapons, including especially depleted uranium. So he was sent by the Pentagon in the very first wave into Iraq um, to look for and uh, and analyze and attempt to mitigate. Uh, the weapons of mass destruction that were in Iraq still. Uh huh. So, so one B is not about
0: anthrax. But no, but but his 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 the, your affidavit is, isn't it? Oh, that, my affidavit absolutely. It's yeah, aff- that's what I meant. Oh, the affidavit you have. Oh, I see you you haven't seen the. Affidavit. <laughs> yeah, for a moment I was thinking. Oh, did I really get that that far off?
1: Well, no, you use the word presentation. Yes, so I,
0: I got would, it. Like, I got it, dear. Yeah, I yeah. know.
1: Yeah, That's the dyslexic artist. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what I might do is just briefly go through my items. Would that work? Sure. Okay. So um, if everybody can still be on my items, under Barbara's items, under show items, uh, on the uh, homepage for tonight's show, on the other side of midnight. Uh, number two is a phenomenal new film. It's called Peace, War, and 9-11. It is uh, a documentary that is brilliantly done as interleaving clips from an interview with an unfortunately no longer with us, incredible 9-11 truth movement hero, and that is Professor Graham McQueen of Canada. He died recently. I think he died in July. And shortly before he died, he was interviewed by Ted Walter, who is the CEO and uh, in the leadership of a very important new organization called the International Center for 9-11 Justice. And the International Center for 9-11 Justice co-sponsored our event that I just talked to you about. And you can watch all four hours in the video with a link in my item number one. So the International Center for 9-11 Justice co-sponsored our event a week ago tomorrow, last Sunday, September 10th, for the anniversary. And we sponsored their event. And their event was held the same day. It started literally as ours ended. And we coordinated that so people could watch both. And their event was a live event. It wasn't uh, live stream. However, you can now watch it at this link. The video is there. Um, and so it was on September 10th, Sunday, last Sunday, it was a live event and it was the premier screening in the United States in New York City at a theater seated about, it was standing room only for 150 seated seat theater of this new film, Peace War and 9-11. And within, within, I think it was 48 hours of it going online at this link. I think this is the Rumble link. Yes. Um, I got an email from Ted Walter, who did the interview and uh, did the uh, co-directed and co-produced and co-edited the film. Um, I got an email from him that it had already received almost 500,000, half a million views in just a few hours. And now it's millions. This is a phenomenal film that I honestly believe, I honestly believe that this film could fulfill... Professor Graham McQueen, he was the head of the uh, of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster University in Canada for 30 years. And his mission in life was to end war on planet Earth. And I actually believe that this film, seen by enough people at critical mass, uh, is a tool that can actually accomplish his life's mission after he died posthumously. It's phenomenally powerful, okay? Um, so that's number two. My third item is very important. <laughs> My third item, m- many people have forgotten or most people didn't don't even know, that there's something called the other 9/11. And it really shouldn't be called the other 9/11 because it happened back in 1973 and that was the CIA's the CIA mastermind minded coup against the democratically elected socialist president of um Chile and that was uh, Allende and that was a coup by his uh, the general in charge of his military in Chile and that was Pinochet and it's called the other 9/11 because it happened on September 11th 1993 and guess what <laughs> it began with a military fighter jet crashing into Allende's presidential palace and killing him. Okay? And the person who, from the United States, um, who was most instrumental in working with the CIA on the Pinochet coup of Allende on September 11, 19... 19- uh, 73 was none other than Henry Kissinger, and I just want to remind everybody, if you didn't know already or if you've forgotten, that right after, it took almost three and a half years for the the Bush Jr. Cheney administration to allow, to allow there to be a 9-11 commission, and that was only because of the Jersey girls, four of the wives of men who died in World Trade Center 1 on 9-11, they were called the Jersey Girls. And because of their publicity and their efforts uh, within the administration and the Congress, the Bush Jr. Cheney administration had no choice, had no choice but to finally open the 9-11 Commission. And George W. Bush, President George W. Bush Jr., first um, appointee to be the director, the executive director of the 9-11 Commission with none other than cover-up artists, Henry Kissinger, and he was finally, he finally, um, very quickly, in fact, resigned after being confronted by the Jersey girls in his office when they went to interview him, and they asked him, um, they they asked him to pledge that none of his clients at Kissinger Associates had the last name Bin Laden, and they reported publicly afterwards that he almost fell on the couch, and he immediately resigned as head of the 9-11 Commission. So the other 9/11 and 9/11 have Henry Kissinger as one of the many common denominators. I think we're at the bottom of the hour, right?
0: Can you yeah, Yes,
3: please.
0: yes. So you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Our guest tonight is Barbara Honiger. The show is called 22 Years, What Have We Learned? And we're learning more and more as we go along all these new twists and turns. So we will be right back after the break. Thank you, Barbara.
4: If you're in
5: into hyperdimensional, one thing
4: you'll find is
3: essential is our club. 19.5.
4: It's a hyperdimensional storage case A treasure trove of outer space
3: Our club,
4: 19.5
3: All the data we've accumulated The find here titled and collated Why don't you just drop on by And give our club a try
4: If you're in
3: the hyperdimensional You'll find our credentials are fine Club 19.5
6: TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Holden and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought the other side
0: welcome back to the other side of midnight our guest tonight is Barbara Honiger in a little while we're going to be joined also by Richard Gage, and then later Robert Morningstar. This is a review of the 9-11 question and how it's been impeded, and we were just listening about how Kissinger uh, played a part and then decided not to play a part. (laughs) So, Barbara, you want to take it back? (laughs) Yeah, can you hear me okay? can hear you fine. Thank you.
1: All right. So we were going through my items, so if people can go back to that. Um, we got up to item number four. So I put this together myself. I think this; these are two photos that are worth a trillion words. And can you see that, Cynthia?
0: Can you see item number four? Yes, I can. I'm sorry. Sometimes I'm muting because there's some... Activity happening in the background here. Oh,
1: okay. All right. Well, my (laughs) ice number four. I believe if you click on it, yes, it will get a little bit bigger.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: Everybody can click on these uh, any any images, and they should get bigger. Um, So on the left, of course, is the critical moment. I believe that's supposed to be frame three thirteen in the Zabruder film of the Kennedy assassination. And then on the right, of course, you have. The attack on the second tower on on 9-11, on World Trade Center 2, with World Trade Center 1 having already been struck, smoking in the background, like a huge, like a huge match, right? Well, all I'm going to say about this is they speak, they speak volumes, and I just want to point out to people that these are the two events that we know the government's lied to us hugely about the real perpetrators, number one. And number two, just remember that both of them were on live television. Now, the Zapruder film, of course, uh, wasn't on live television, but the assassination was. The Zapruder film didn't come out for some time afterwards, um, and that's on the left. But people saw it live on TV. And people saw it, saw the World Trade Center attack l- live on TV, the second attack. And that's what you're seeing there, the big billowing, uh, orange-red smoke lamp uh, of the attack on World Trade Center 2. And that's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. One of the, the most important red flags that, uh, one of these catastrophic events, the events that you can divide history before and after. Uh, the common denominator for an event that really is an inside job uh, is that all of the television cameras uh, are trained on it when it happens. That's not a coincidence.
0: I'd like to add something here too yes. about that. Please do. Let's have a conversation. <laughs> so you know, this these these two events they have the hallmark of of the dark forces which is to instill fear at the most base level you know the the feeling of helplessness and hopelessness and this is their weapon is the fear that's engendered by what they're doing like nobody can imagine someone would someone would deliberately do this you know in a point where you think you're invincible then suddenly you recognize oh my gosh how could that have happened it it shakes everyone to their core of their being that's and the purpose. yeah exactly so it's a that's why like you said it, they've got all the cameras on it they're, they're sucking out our energy with that fear well the the
1: your your weapon the, the weapon of the citizenry is simply not to be afraid that's what—that's the most important thing. No matter what, do not be afraid. Okay. Um, and my number five. If you scroll down a little bit, and I think if you click on that, yep, it does get bigger. Um, this is—I really like this graphic.
3: Oh, let do me
0: too.
1: Let, let me go back to, to the one just a moment uh, to the one before. So that would be my number five, wouldn't it? Um, no, my number four. Um, I just wanted to point out, and that's all I'll say about this, that there are there are very compelling parallels between the specific substance of the JFK assassination and 9/11, especially at the World Trade Center in New York City on 9/11. However, there are obvious parallels about who did it and the inside job of who did it. Number one and number two, the cover-up, how they did the cover-up. It's a it's cookie cutter. And um, I'll just let people know that if you're interested in my, in the PowerPoints or the videos of my presentations that I've given, I think it's like four years now in a row. During COVID, it was online, but most of them were in person, live at the, uh, the, the JFK Assassination Anniversary Conferences in Dallas. Um, my presentations were invited presentations. I was asked to give presentations each year on the parallels between the JFK assassination and 9-11. And anyone who's interested in receiving those, that was just too much to put in the items. But you could email me, and my email is B, as in boy, S, is in Sam, H, is in Harry, O, N, as in Nancy, E, as in Edward, two Gs, like George, George at gmail.com. B-S-H-O-N-E-G-G at gmail.com and be sure to put the subject line follow up the other side of midnight show. Otherwise I will not find it because I get about 500 emails a day and don't even have the time to read the subject lines let alone open them. But I can I could put that subject line into my Gmail search field and find it. So be sure and use the subject line follow up to the other side of midnight show. Okay, so now I'm going down to my item number five. Uh, If you click on that, make it larger. There's also um, amazing, of course, parallels as I've already mentioned. The link, the link to be explicit now, the link between 9/11 and the pandemic, the coronavirus, all of the lies about it, all of the all of what was really going on with all the worldwide vaccinations. Um, the link is the anthrax attacks, the biowarfare attacks that, um, that for which there were shocking links that are in my presentation at the video in my item number one of our lawyers' committee for 9/11 inquiry event on September 10th, just a week ago, tomorrow. Um, but there are there the anthrax attacks, the biowarfare attacks um, that are linked to the day of 9/11 itself. They are the link to what then happened in the pandemic, the coronavirus vaccine, and all the lies surrounding it, and everything that they're trying to roll out now, which is uh, there's, there's, a, there's a United Nations um, uh, WHO pandemic treaty, and there's a United Nations um, PPPR, uh, which is about to be rolled out, uh, and they are trying to globalize. The, the WHO treaty is is – they're claiming that it's not binding upon nation states like the United States, but that's a lie. Right. Because treaties under the Constitution are the highest law of the land. Read your Constitution. Now, that does – Wait, Barbara, define-
0: before, mm-hmm. before you go on, I'd yep. love to describe this beautiful graphic that you mentioned, the parallels, because right. some people are not seeing this, and it's really cool. Oh, okay. Yeah. So on the left side, you see this high modern city, and there's a bunch of these like they're asleep, and there's this huge tsunami of red, and it says coronavirus, and it's got the spike proteins floating around, like coronavirus is so much taller than the tallest building in the city, and it's about to take it down with this flood of coronavirus. So that's one image. And on the other side, you've got the Twin Towers, except that each building is, uh, on one of them, it says the Bill of Rights. And then you can see the, the the articles of the Bill of Rights are written on both buildings. And you can see this plane headed for it with a silhouette of the plane being cast on the Bill of Rights, like they are aiming to take down the Bill of Rights. Go ahead, Barbara. It,
1: well, and... If you notice,
0: on the plane, it reads Patriot Act.
3: Yeah, (laughs) right.
0: That's the other thing about them. They always say words that are the opposite of what their intent is. They mask it. They mask it to make it look like, oh, this is acceptable. And meanwhile, they're sticking the knife in your gut.
1: Mm-hmm. Or in your back, yeah.
0: Or in your back more more accurately. So, so the reason the word Patriot Act
1: in the right-hand uh, graphic that the, the word Patriot Act is on the plane that's about to hit uh, World Trade Center 1, which has the Bill of Rights at the top, and then both towers have the actual Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution written on the front of the towers, just as the Patriot Act plane's about to hit them to hit the first tower, um, the importance about the word Patriot Act on that plane and that graphic, many people forget, but the most weaponized, militarized, one trillion spores per gram, the deadliest anthrax ever made on this planet, that was in the letters to Senators Leahy and Dashiell. Senators Leahy and Daschle were the two senators doing everything they could to stop the Patriot Act when they when their offices received the militarized anthrax that terrorized the entire Congress. Shut down, shut down the Hart Senate office building for five days. Shut down the Supreme Court building. Killed five people, injured seventeen, and shut down the um post office facility that feeds the white house and congress and so so on they were doing everything they could to block the patriot act and they had been threatened in personal phone calls from both president bush and vice president cheney that they had until october 5th that was that was the date that they were given as a deadline that they had to by october 5th they had to have done whatever they needed to do to go ahead and vote for it so it could pass. The Patriot Act could pass. The Patriot Act was the weapon. It was over 850 pages long. It was already written before 9-11.
0: Right. The members
1: of Congress couldn't even read it. And they were literally terrorized by being attacked with a weapon of mass destruction, which is what a bioweapon anthrax is, into the building of the Senate of the United States, the Congress of the United States itself. The real attack on the Capitol of the United States was the anthrax letters that went to Senators Leahy and Daschle. Now, what's important about the October 5th, further proof proof that Bush, President Bush and Vice President Cheney knew what was going to happen on October 5th or they predicted the date of October 5. And that is that the very, now we're talking about uh, long before October 5, well before October 5. I think the Patriot Act finally passed on September 25th, something like that. Uh, but anyway, guess what happened on October 5th? October 5th was the day that the first recipient of the first Amtrak's letter, Bob Stevens, down at American Media International, Publication building in Florida died of inhalation anthrax, having received an anthrax letter at his AMI workplace in Boca Raton, Florida. Do you think that's a coincidence? No way. No way. No way at all. So that's my item number five. Well, my item number six, and I've had this on the show many times before, but you always have new people on, thank goodness. So my item number six is the link to my video documentary on the Pentagon attack. It's called Behind the Smoke Curtain, What Really Happened at the Pentagon on 9-11 and What Didn't and Why It Matters. Now, it had cumulatively, because it was reposted everywhere online on YouTube, it had over half a million views before
0: YouTube took it down. And my item 6A. Wait, wait, wait. Before uh-huh. you move on, I yeah. just want to point out. There you go. YouTube takes it down. Where? Who do they stand with? Exactly. You know, the mass media that has been saying, oh, the vaccine is fine. Yeah. They aren't scientists. They've blocked every scientist that tried to give the truth. That's right. That's true.
1: And you wouldn't normally think of of YouTube as basically an arm of the of the federal government, but it is. Okay. And
0: six Well, eight. I I'd like to just say a little slant oh, yeah. here. Federal government is one entity. I think there are those who really are for the country and I think there are those who've stolen the power.
1: Well, of course I agree with you.
0: Yeah, so I would certainly that would, that say would be, that the media is owned by a few big corporations. They call it the Mockingbird Media because they're all giving the same reports and they're fact checkers. My God, if you look up the information on the fact checkers, you'll wonder, Oh my gosh, who am I listening to?
1: Yeah, exactly. The fact checkers need serious fact checking.
0: So, yeah.
1: Well, that's precisely that's precisely what is proven in my Documentary here behind the smoke curtain: What happened, what really happened at the Pentagon on 9/11, and what didn't, and why it matters. And you have the link to that there. It had over half a million views on YouTube before YouTube did take it down. And this documentary proves, in fact, um, that the, amongst many other things, that the mainstream media was, was com- totally complicit um, in the cover-up of 9/11. My six
0: A. Wait, wait, before you move yeah, on, I'm yeah. <laughs> sorry, Barbara. So did you repost that on like Rumble or BitChute? Yes, well, that's on archive.org. It's also okay. on Rumble, but I just gave you well, one. Well, I would, it's good, good. It's on Rumble because they have a huge audience.
1: Yeah, it's also on Rumble. I can send that link to be added
0: to it. If I you think want. we should add that to the page. Okay. All right. I'll do that. Yeah, I mean, half a million links, That that tells you people really want to know. Oh yeah, before they took it down. And right. now you
1: can barely find it.
0: Yeah. So we need to make it easier to find. We'll put that okay. on the page.
1: All right, I'll I'll send you the rumble. Um so my six A is my other major personal nine eleven documentary. And no, excuse me, six A is my chapter. It's a it's a published chapter in the Toronto nine eleven hearings report. It's my chapter. I think it's 13. The title of the chapter is Evidence of Preplaced Explosives at the Pentagon on 9-11. That's pretty shocking to people because everybody who knows anything about the truth about 9-11 knows that there were preplaced explosives and incendiaries in the trade towers, World Trade Center 1 and 2, and World Trade Center 7, not hit by a plane, and yet came down in a classic controlled demolition at 520 in the afternoon of- 11 Um, one-third of its collapse being in complete gravity only freefall which requires all of its columns to have been severed simultaneously by preplaced explosives and incendiaries well the same thing is true at the Pentagon my my chapter in the Toronto 9-11 hearings report And my documentary in item six, behind the smoke curtain, what really happened at the Pentagon on 9-11, it proves that the real story at the Pentagon, just as at the World Trade Center, is, yes, there was a plane that was destroyed there, but there were also pre-placed explosives inside the building. Okay. My number seven is the 9-11 Museum virtual walking tour. This is the link to the video it's online it also had it even had more it had a, it had many more than half a million views before being taken down by youtube and by Again. the way <laughs> yeah youtube took down both of these critical documentaries that were going viral only during the pandemic isn't that interesting
0: well yeah they don't want people to make the correlation
1: mhm
0: i think you're right so
1: what's wonderful about the 9-11 Museum Virtual Walking Tour, giving you the reposted link there on archive.org. It's also on Rumble, and I will send that to you um, for that Rumble link as well. But the neat thing about the 9-11 Museum Virtual Walking Tour, this is my vision that I executed the whole thing, and that is I went to the 9-11 Museum at Ground Zero. This was in 2013 or 2014, so about a decade ago now. And I took my low-light, camera, my high resolution camera that did well in low light because it's very terrible light in there. They have it very dark on purpose. And so I went into the um, the actual exhibit, which is seven stories underground, underground. at the ground level. Uh, most people don't know six or seven stories that the World Trade Center towers had six basement levels beneath the ground level. So that's where the museum is
0: all those levels underground and so, so when it, the when the buildings fell they didn't impact the levels underneath underground oh yes they did but that's i'm, I'm not going to go into that that was repaired well i'm not sure what you mean i mean the whole well thing i was, mean yeah. like it's safe to go in there you're not going to have anything dropping on your head no 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 it, i mean not now
1: no <laughs> it's underground the, the the museum itself is six or seven stories underground at the bedrock level. Mm-hmm. And the bedrock level on nine eleven was under the floor of the sixth basement level down from the ground
3: floor.
0: Oh. So, yeah.
1: So so way down there, so I went in there in twenty fourteen, I think it was, with my high resolution low light camera, and I took photographs of the actual exhibit items all throughout the museum. I was the first one in, and they had to kick me out at the end. I was there <laughs> for a dozen hours or something. And I had all these videos you or photographs. You weren't supposed to, but I did. I took the photos. And then what I did was I used the photos of the actual exhibit items inside the museum to prove that the official story of 9-11, that they're literally trying to cast in stone in this museum, is a complete and total big lie, a Hitlerian big lie. I prove it using their own exhibit items. Wow. And the other, the other neat thing about this walking tour, the 9-11 Museum Virtual Walking Tour, and you've got the link there to the video online on archive.org, reposted after they took it down on YouTube, from YouTube, during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, the other neat thing is that if you have earbuds, you can take your um, you can take your uh, smartphone and play the walking tour with earbuds while you're walking through the museum, six or seven floors underground, and it still works. You still get the signal, and so you can hear you can hear the truth about each one of those critical exhibit items while you're standing in front of it.
0: I'm sure they didn't imagine anybody was going to figure that out or they wouldn't have put them up.
1: (laughs) There you are. I I just love doing that. And it's, it's really, really moving. And it literally, if you've never been to the museum at ground zero, I think they have something like 3 million visitors a year, but you know, there are 350 million people in the country. If you haven't been, it literally takes you through the museum as you would go into it, go down the escalator, get inside the actual like glass doors into the museum at the uh, the bedrock level, and then it takes you through the actual ground zero museum.
0: And what would a reasonable time be to allow for such a tour? You mean if you were physically- if you were actually there going through the tour with the
1: well that would depend upon how serious you were about 911 many many people cannot take it they have to leave
0: um well, they probably feel all that grief i mean it's not just an event it's still there it's in the, intended, in the field it's intended to reproduce the terror wonderful
1: it's intended so um it depends again on how serious you are about watch, you know, reading everything. If you're really serious, 12 hours like me. But most people probably go through in a couple of hours.
0: Uh-huh. I would think. I mean, it's a guess. Well, mm-hmm. would you say that they would get a lot of the information through doing your online tour rather than actually being there and feeling all that grief? Oh, much better. I think I prefer that method. I don't think I want to be immersed in a bath of terror. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's in fact,
1: in order you'll you'll see this when you go. Um, I I take in the virtual walking tour of the Ground Zero 9/11 Museum. I take you through all the rooms. One of the first rooms you go through is this dark cavern, cavernous chamber in which you are bombarded with the shrieking um, uh, cries for help
0: from the tower. That would be, I think, very disturbing. I think I would be haunted by that. It's intended to haunt you. Ah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is. So that's, um, and then um, I think we have about two minutes before the top of the hour, and we're going to be bringing Richard Gage on, the founder of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. Um, I'm the I'm the chairman of the board of the Lawyers' Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, and a couple of years ago, Richard uh, went solo. Um, he left Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, went out on his own, and founded RichardGage911.org, RichardGage911.org and he's also on the board of directors of which I'm chairman of the board of our Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry so Richard will be coming on in about seven minutes um, so I'll just I'm almost done with my items my item number eight um, this is just kind of a, a, a kind of going back in history um, this Thanks. is um, a video of my live in it's so on c Um but I've I put it up on archive.org on this link, video link. Um, it's my live in-studio interview on C-SPAN in the studio in Washington, D.C. on my book, October Surprise. And you will see what I looked like when I was half my age now at 30, 30 let's see, 30, probably 35, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then number nine.
0: Uh, Barbara, I'm so sorry, but we really do need to jump we sure. will continue with this conversation on the other side of the break. You're no listening problem. to The Other Side of Midnight. Our guest right now is Barbara Honiger, soon to be joined by Richard Gage and Robert Morningstar.
3: University Time for you To wander through The mansions in your mind. Nothing to lose, Is everything Defined Outside oh, Midnight But somewhere on this pale blue dot, it's midday in the sun. The sun that shines on everyone at some time in the day, and everyone's got something to say. (laughs) Oh, <laughs>
0: I was muted again. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. The show tonight is 22 years. What have we learned? We've been engaged in a conversation with Barbara Honegger. And Barbara, I'm inviting you to finish your items eight and nine. And hopefully we'll be able to get Richard Gage on soon. Yes. Keith was going to call him right now at
1: 10.03 p.m. Pacific. So... He should um, he should be shortly. Okay, so um, I had gotten to my item number eight, which is uh, the video of my live in studio C-SPAN interview on my uh, book October Surprise on the, the the deep story behind the Iran side of Iran Contra, the delay in the release of The Hostages by the Reagan-Bush 1980 campaign to steal the election from President Carter. And number nine is my book, October Surprise, which is available, that's the cover of the book, available on Amazon. My number 10, everything we've been talking about so far, I really want to end here with an upbeat note. And number 10 is an amazing, it's a photograph that I sent to Keith by text attachment because it's on Twitter and he had to be had to be subscribed to Twitter. So it's a little bit hard to, to see, but maybe let's see if you, if you click on it, it doesn't get any bigger because it did come from Twitter. But anyway, um, it is the double rainbow. There are a double, it's a little bit hard to see, but you'll see on the left there, you can see the double rainbow uh, very faintly behind the main rainbow and this beautiful double rainbow. Burst into the sky on the anniversary, this past Monday, September eleventh, twenty twenty three, over New York City. And isn't that
0: beautiful? It's amazing. I mean, it looks so staged. It and, does. <laughs> and it couldn't be more. You know, like some artist put it there to paint. Yes. Well, grand a grand artist. A grand
1: artist. A heavenly artist. I mean, I. I look at that. And I have hope. I have serious hope that we're going to prevail mm-hmm. with the truth and legal accountability for 9-11, which, of course, is exactly what the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry is all about. Um, and then this uh, my on item number 11, and there are only two more, and then Richard will hopefully join us. My item number 11 is from the New York Times a few days ago, right after, I think it was September 12th. Day after the anniversary no uh yeah day after and um no it was on september 11 itself and it's an article that headline in the in the uh, hard copy the the print edition and m- many people don't know but uh, the online edition of the new york times and the washington post for some reason they changed the headline but this is the headline of my hard copy print edition And the headline was, An Ocean from Ground Zero in Ireland, A Peaceful Grove Recalls the 9-11 Firefighters. And in this, you you have to go to the link. And by the way, Keith told me that you need to be subscribed to be able to to read the article and to see the beautiful photographs. But the bottom line is that um, a woman who was born in Ireland or her family, her ancestry was from Ireland. She was a nurse in uh, New York City on 9-11. And even though there were very few survivors that ended up in the hospitals, because there are over a 1,000 people who, there isn't a single a single finger bone that's been found in the dust at all. Oh. And there were very, very few survivors that even got to the hospital, but she took care of many of them. And then... Because so many of the firefighters were uh, were Irish of Irish ancestry, when she went back to her ancestral town in Ireland, um, she she had the wherewithal. I guess some inheritance, but in any case, she had the wherewithal. And on their family property, on her property, she planted 343 sycamore and oak trees one for each of the 343 New York City firefighters who died in the tower on 9/11. And it's a beautiful beautiful grove where you walk. You walk down this grassy corridor with the beautiful now full-grown trees. 22 years they've been growing on either side of you right and left with a name plaque for each one of the 343 firefighters and an American flag. Ah. And it's a beautiful beautiful place. It's
0: a peaceful,
1: restful spiritual place.
0: See that? Now that's a tribute. I think that's much more of a tribute than the museum underneath to terrorize you. Of course.
1: <laughs> okay, and then the last item is my
0: number 12, and this is important. By the way, is Richard on yet? We're we've we're trying to call him now. We tried Skype, he's yellow now we're calling him on the phone and Keith is typing oh. something. Very good.
1: Okay. So, well, good timing. So my last item is my number 12. And um, the headline, this is again in the New York Times. Uh, this was uh, back on August 18th, just recently. Military judge throws out Guantanamo detainees' alleged, I under the word alleged, confession, because it was derived from torture. And this is the first time that a confession, in this case, of one of the top, uh, de- the top uh, defendants, military defendants in Guantanamo, uh, in this case, for uh, he was charged with being a, mas- a mastermind of the USS Cole bombing, which was on October 12th of the year 2000, a little bit, a uh, little bit over a year before 9/11. But because the same Guantanamo court threw out the confession. Of this man, his name is Al-Nasiri, because he had been tortured in CIA black sites 183 times. What this article then makes clear in a paragraph is that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the other four defendants called the 9 11 who are also at Guantanamo, and they still have not been brought into the military trial there. These are the alleged masterminds and co-conspirators of the 9-11 attacks themselves. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the alleged mastermind of the 9-11-5, he was also tortured exactly 183 times. So if the court has thrown out the confession of another man, the mastermind of the USS Cole bombing, for precisely the same CIA torture, you can be certain that the court is almost certainly going to throw out the confessions of the 9 11 And the government's case relies upon those confessions. The 9-11, the 9-11 commission report assumed the truth of those confessions and was based upon those alleged confessions that were taken under torture. So um, the government, the the Biden administration, and the U.S. Navy that runs Guantanamo, they are trying desperately to get Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in the 9 11 alleged co-conspirator masterminds of the 9-11 attacks themselves. They're desperately trying to get them to cut a plea deal that they will admit that they did it because they won't be able to accept their confession. Okay. The court will throw it out. Right. To get them to agree to a plea plea deal in order not to get the death penalty. But in order not to get the death penalty, they have to admit they did it without using the confession but these are martyrs. They want to be killed. So, the bottom line is, the bottom line is, I don't believe that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the 9/11 five will ever be brought to a trial, a real trial in Guantanamo, which would be a kangaroo court anyway, precisely mm-hmm. for this reason, because they're not, they're not going to agree to the plea deal, and their confessions will be thrown in.
0: I see. Well, you know, you mentioned here that the Biden administration is working to get them to do this plea deal. Trying to. And i just like to point out what are, you know, whose side is this administration on?
1: Well, all administrations have been on the side of the official lie.
3: Every right. Week,
0: including Trump. Well, we've got a long journey. The people have to stand up and demand what's real and what's true. And we have to like I know they're getting ready to do another plandemic wave, another lockdown. We need to say to no.
1: Way, once Richard Gage comes on. Richard Richard,
0: um Richard wears two hats here on the show tonight. And I, is is he on yet, by the way? No, he's not. We're just about to email him because he has, we think his phone is turned off and his Skype is showing yellow. So I don't know, is he having communication problems or what? Um, let me make sure.
1: Give me, give me the, well, we probably don't want to put out the phone Can number. you see the chat?
0: No, I, no, I don't. Okay, well, can you take a text or you can email me the number and I'll put it in the chat. Email me what you have. Well, well, don't put it in the chat for the audience, though. So. No, the audience can't see the chat. Okay, all right. Well, <laughs> uh, keep
1: keep talking for a moment while I do okay. that. Okay,
0: all right. So, all right. so yes, I it appears that they're getting ready to usher us into another season of lockdowns, and you know, I'm not saying everybody should run out in the street and protest, but certainly do not comply. We have to stand up and stand in our strength and not in fear. Do not comply because they don't have any good intended, intentions at all. I can't say that more strongly. Anybody's heard Dr. Martin talking on this subject?
5: Um, I, guess, I can see yes. It.
0: yes, Robert, come on in.
5: I just want to point the audience to a link that Barbara put on, the one with the rainbow. If you go down a couple of the frames, Richard Gage has put on the best proof that uh, the South Tower was destroyed by controlled demolition. It's the first video that shows the flashes of the explosions. Uh, coming out of the side of the building. A lot of this video that has come out uh, this year in particular shows the controlled demolition. Many years ago, probably 10 years ago, I found a demonstration of this. The top of the building, the South Tower, when it went down, the entire top of the building, I think about 20 stories of it, broke off as one huge chunk. And someone got a video of it. And I saw it, and this huge chunk of the building, 20 stories intact, giant block, fell over sideways, and I was able to see the explosions going floor by floor as that whole chunk was coming down. I wrote about it, and it was quickly scrubbed from YouTube. Unfortunately, at that time, I didn't have the uh, ability to, to download YouTube, although I do have that now.
0: So is but- it on your sub now?
5: No, no, I have never been able to find it again. But wow. also, if you go down several, now you're going you're gonna to have to get a translator, so I'm going to have to translate it you. There's an interview with Vladimir Putin in 1998. The, the audio is in Russian, but the subtitles are in Spanish. And I can understand and read Spanish, so I'll tell you. He was interviewed in 1998, and he said, we know that... The, the United States and a Middle Eastern country, Israel, are planning what he described as an auto attack in Spanish, auto attack, self-inflicted attack. And he said, "If I ever become president of Russia, I will tell the people the truth." That's why Vladimir Putin is uh, demonized in the in the press because he started telling the The world the truth about the global cabal the uh, the unholy union of the United States a deep state with the deepest interests and plans for a greater Israel and I'll speak more about that later with regard to the war in Ukraine And Max Egan speaks very clearly about that in my items. Mm
0: -hmm. So while he's
5: trying to get Richard Gage, I wanted to... Well,
0: how about this? While we're waiting for Richard Gage, why don't I let the audience, whoever's new, know a little bit about you? Okay. Okay. All right. So we've just been hearing from Robert Morningstar. He has... Puts out the Morningstar report and the UFO Digest. Um, The UFO ufos over the great state of maine memories and recollections of ufo hunter uh, well okay this is a list of his articles robert morningstar is a civilian intelligence analyst investigative journalist and psychotherapist living in new york city and and i'm sure our audience knows you really well but i know there are new people here robert is a specialist in photo interpretation Geometric Analysis, and Computer Imaging. Robert Morningstar is a graduate of Powell Power Memory Academy and was a New York State Regents Scholar at Fordham University, where he received a degree in psychology. While at Fordham University in 1969, Robert participated as a research fellow in the U.S. Navy-sponsored program to develop artificial intelligence. So Robert is also um, an expert in Chinese. He's a master of Tai Chi. He's an FAA licensed private pilot. Um, He's an instructor. And he's done an amazing series on the JFK assassination with his analysis of the Saputa film. And uh, lately, the uh, conversations he had with the man who confessed to actually having pulled a trigger that, trigger that took JFK out. So, Robert, you want to continue?
5: Yes. Um, since this is about 9-11, I'd like to reminisce a little bit about my relationship with the towers. You know, that's an interesting word, relationship. And we have relationships with people, but we also have relationships with places, you mentioned Power Memorial Academy. I like you said, power memory. That's what I got out of it. <laughs> so, But I saw the World Trade Centers being built. I went to Power Memorial from 1963 to 1967. And that's when the construction started. So about two years in my, I guess, my sophomore, junior year, we could see it. It was about seven miles away. And I could see the structure of the World Trade Center going up floor by floor, floor by floor, until it was completed. Now, when it got halfway up and and higher, at the time of the winter solstice, the sun travels south in New York. And at the winter solstice, the sun would be setting behind the World Trade Center. And with the sun behind it and backlit, I could see the workers on the girders and they looked to me like ants so I came to call them the little ant men of light and it's uh, a vision that I will never forget so it's something that's very dear to my heart I saw them go up and I saw them go down I visited them several times and I'll tell you quite honestly I couldn't wait to get out. There was something about it at the top floor and the roof that I felt claustrophobic. I could go on the Empire State Building and stay for hours and uh, just enjoy it. But when I would go to the World Trade Center, you could walk right up to the edge of a full-length window. There was no frame. It was just glass from your, toe, oh. from your from your toes to the ceiling. And you could just look down you know, to New York. But the, it always left me with a bad feeling, I felt. And honestly, several times I said to myself, boy, I'd hate to be caught in here if there was ever a fire.
0: Wow, I think that was a premonition on your part. You're highly Absolutely.
5: intuitive. Absolutely. Uh, gut feeling like, okay, I've seen it. Time to get out of here. The other thing I'd like to describe is going on top of the North Tower, where there was a platform that held uh, the antenna that broadcast all the television cable stations and uh, relayed all of the uh, cell phone communications. And that that antenna was the size of an Atlas missile. It was huge. It was... Uh, very large in circumference and about 60 to 70 feet high. And um, when it went down, I was watching Fox News and they had a helicopter right above it. And when the platform gave way, the fire was on the 92nd floor. It uh, weakened the support structure. That thing went down straight through the center of the World Trade Center and made a sound that I will never forget. So if Richard is back, I can hold off or I, I can continue.
0: No, he's not back. And I just wanted to uh, let Keith know that Barbara has the same phone number for him that I do. So I, why don't you just go ahead and continue, Robert?
5: Okay. So that is um, two, you know, the bookends, memories, you
4: know, the, the construction.
5: It was a beautiful sight seeing the um, the iron workers building the towers and seeing thousands of them uh, walking the girders before any kind of walls or anything were up with the sun behind them. And again, as I said, they look like ants to me. And so I call them, the I always remember them with great fondness, the little ant men of light. Then, Robert? Yes, dear.
1: Yeah, Robert and Kansia, I just wanted to jump in. Uh, I have no no doubt whatsoever that you had a premonition when you were in the world trade center. Yes. Um, was that in building one? Because that's where the antenna was. My question to you. And then I have, if you're interested, I can tell you, I was. I just got a call today from Russell Targ, who's been on the other side of midnight recently, yes. many times. And we were talking about nine 11. He asked me to send him my behind the smoke curtain link to my documentary video. And I did. And, um, and I think that's because he got a uh, one of your uh, one of your newsletters, Robert. Yes. Um, yeah, and he saw that you said that you felt that my behind the smoke curtain was the definitive documentary on nine eleven, the truth about it. And so he saw that and he called me up, and we had a good long conversation. And he reminded me, or me him, actually, of uh, of Ingo Swan's premonition about the World Trade Center attacks. Um, would you like to hear that? Certainly. Yeah. So Ingo Swann was, of course, uh, an amazing psychic. He was one of the, the main remote viewers at Russell Park and helped put off uh, first remote viewing uh, research project at SRI, Stanford Research International. And that was when I was getting my, my first ever in the world in the U.S., um, First ever graduate, accredited graduate degree in parapsychology and consciousness studies. So I knew uh, Ingo, I knew Russell Targ. I knew Russell Targ especially. We're very close. And so Russell told me that before nine eleven, that Ingo Swan told him that he had such a strong premonition. It was as if he was seeing the World Trade Centers collapsing. In, in dust, and it made him literally nauseous, sick to his stomach and nauseous for a long time. So you and Ingo Swan have that in common. And my question to you is, so because that antenna was necessary, as I understood it, for television coverage, for television coverage of, of anything in New York City, or the mainstream media cable news network etc where did all that television coverage at an ad nauseum come from after the tower one with the antenna went down
5: well the fox news uh feed was going out on uh fiber optic cables and uh, i think it was independent of transmission so this was cable television that i was watching and it's one of the it's an unforgettable, unforgettable moment, and uh, I will tell you now, I'll give you details later. I ran into the three jihadis who flew the airplanes uh, into the Pentagon and the Two Towers. I never saw the guy who augured in in Shanksville. And Shanksville was not an airplane. Folks, you were shown a hole in the ground. Because the Shanksville uh, airliner was shot down over Pennsylvania. And what went into the ground in Shanksville was actually a single jet engine that broke away when the airplane was shot down, leaving clothing and bodies all over the trees about eight miles away. The plane broke apart and one of the engines was still spinning and flew eight miles and augured in and created a hole in the ground where there was not a sign of a fuselage, empennage, tail section, wings, nothing, because that's what you were shown, a hole in the ground.
1: That's true. The debris field for the the Pennsylvania plane was over uh, eight miles prior to the alleged crash site.
5: That's right. And one man took a photograph of the, the smoke over the forest where it was shot down. As I understand, on the orders of uh, Dick Cheney. So
1: he said so. He acknowledged it. I can send. I can send that. Um, that uh, it's still on YouTube. I can send the video clip.
5: Yes. Well, I ran into those three terrorists, Patsies. See, I call them the Lee Harvey Oswalds of the 9/11 attack. They did fly they- airplanes into the towers. They were mind controlled and uh, utilized as automatons, dupes stupid dupes, but as Donald Trump said, that was controlled uh, demolition and the airplanes could not have been, uh, could not have brought those buildings down. So what they were, what was done is uh, this group of fanatics was mind controlled and manipulated uh, through third parties and induced to think that they could bring the towers down by crashing airplanes into them. But the facts remain now, and it's really obvious. More and more video has come out, and the things that I saw uh, prove that it was a controlled demolition. It was an auto-attack, as that interview with uh, Putin in 1998 says. And there were predictions of it in Chinese uh, Chinese war manuals describing mm-hmm. unrestricted warfare. It was written by t- Chinese colonels. And they uh, they described the desirability of having a, a structure dis- attacked in the United States that was both economic and psychological to strike us both on an economic level but a psychological level. Well, what what was
1: the date of that statement?
5: That was the book was written in 1998. I acquired the manuscript uh, from a Canadian diplomat. It's called Unrestricted Warfare. It's mm-hmm. a PDF, And you can find it online. I have it. I've sent it out to um, almost everyone I know.
0: Okay. But, hold it there. This okay. is a good time to take a break. And you're listening to the other side of midnight and we're in a conversation with Robert Morningstar and Barbara Honegger. We shall return.
2: side of midnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyper-dimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcast heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The Other Side of Midnight.com The Other Side of Midnight.com Membership costs nine ninety five a month, thirty three cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight dot com.
0: And welcome back to the other side of midnight.
1: Uh, Kincia? Yes. I just got a text actually at nine fifty eight from Richard Gage. I hadn't seen it. Um, and he says he's waiting for a Skype call from uh, from Keith.
0: Well, can he text you the Skype ID he has? Because we've tried him at two different Skype IDs, and sure. he hasn't answered either of them. I, I don't know what to do,
1: because I, I'm i the one who gave Keith the two Skype IDs that Richard gave me.
0: Well, Richard, maybe just plug him again, both of them. I mean, Keith. Yeah, try again.
5: I've- I've looked at all, uh, both of them. Him to turn on his phone.
0: I wonder if yeah. I can add him.
1: I've just texted him that he needs to join Scott, go on Skype and click on the green join button. But he's expecting a call from Keith and apparently didn't get it.
0: I'm, I'm ringing him again. I'm ringing both Skype IDs.
1: Okay. Well, we'll see. There might be something happening. I don't know. Anyway, sorry to do the housekeeping, but we're trying to get Richard
0: Gage
5: on. Yeah, that's okay. I, I would like to say hello to Russell Targ. Uh, I, now I know why he he sent me his phone number this afternoon. I was wondering. I've been uh, waiting to hear from him. So, Russell, if you're listening, uh, I convey my good readings. And uh, I will tell you something. Uh, we See, Russell, Ian Swan, and I have very well-developed skills in remote viewing. And while I'm here, I want to say that all of us are being manipulated by the mass media. It is the greatest exercise of MK Ultra mind control that's ever been developed. And people who have their heads in CNN are totally plugged in to MKUltra mind control. And you have, oh, to, yeah. have to break away, not just not just CNN, all of all of the all of the stations. Uh, so they have been putting out assassination warnings for a very long time regarding Trump and Robert F Kennedy Jr. Three nights ago, I had a terrible, terrible dream. I saw a very hateful person with a beard stalking me, and he was glaring at me with a hatred that I haven't experienced since 1998 when I met Mohammed Atta in Hamburg. Atta looked like he wanted to jump out right over this table and and kill me. And I wish he had tried, because everything would have been really different if that had happened. Be that as it may, it didn't happen. The glare of hatred that I saw coming from this person, a broad-faced, bearded person, uh, bothered me so much in the dream that I went and confronted him and we wound up fighting, tangling, wrestling, and I was fighting viciously. I was biting and ripping flesh off his hands and his arms. And I awakened from this nightmare, quite frankly, and said to my friend, hey, you know, I just had this terrible dream. I saw this bearded guy, and he was, he was full of hatred. He, he was stalking me, so I decided to confront him. And it ended as, as I told you. Well, this morning, I was quite shocked literally shocked to find a report in my email from Redline News describing the arrest of a man in Los Angeles who had gone into Robert Kennedy's outreach uh, to the Hispanic community. He pretended to be a U.S. Marshal. He had a badge, U.S. Marshal badge, hanging around his neck. He said that he was part of Robert. F. Kennedy Jr.'s uh, security, but some very alert people saw that he was fake. He was carrying two guns in shoulder holsters, and they reported them. They grabbed him and held him till Los Angeles police showed up and arrested him. And when I saw his picture, it was identical to the man that I saw in my dream. So. Be forewarned, they are trying to set up another trauma, a mass trauma. The worst day in my life, before 9-11, was the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And Barbara has quite wisely put and juxtaposed two photographs, frame Z313 of the purported uh, Zapruder film, and... The, the strike on the South Tower. Both are faked to a great degree. The Kennedy frame is fake. It is not really what happened. I One of my claims to fame in the JFK assassination
4: community, and
5: my first claim to fame, was to prove that the Zapruder film was a consciously engineered mass hallucination. If one person watches it alone, it's an optical illusion. If a mass of people watch it at the same time, it's a mass hallucination. When I went to Fordham University, I got my degree in psychology, and my three favorite subjects were Jungian psychology, time and motion studies, and Gestalt psychology. Gestalt psychology was a psychology that was developed in Germany, which taught psychologists how a human being forms a thought or an idea, and it's geometrically constructed. Our eyes divide our reality on a horizontal axis and a vertical axis, like an XY graph. And then we compartmentalize the objects into those quadrants and then we integrate things that are alike and things that are dissimilar and we get a visual perception and from that proceeds an idea. Using this technology, mind control technology, the Nazis were able to compose posters of Hitler that everyone would see and simultaneously have the same thought and think that that thought was their own. That's how advanced Gestalt psychology is and was, and was by 1963. So what I was able to analyze was that I, it it went like this. On November 21st of 1991, CBS News um, showed the best version of the Supruder film that had ever been shown. It was a show called Hard Copy, and I happened to be ill at the time. I had been working for 10 days in a row and I didn't feel good. So I decided to stay home and cut, uh, cut my classes. There was an announcement that this would be shown. And so I ran to my VCR. I grabbed a tape, threw it in. I recorded it and just, you know, I said, wow, I have a copy of this. at Brutafone. Three months later, I came across William Cooper's monograph. It was called The Secret Government. And in it, he said that the the driver had shot the president. I said, that's crazy. So I went in and I started studying the film. And at that time, I purchased the most advanced VCR, Panasonic VCR, that had yet been marketed. And it had frame-by-frame, slow motion, and uh, stop still frames. And it was really great. So I started watching it. And as I put it in slow motion, I started to see multiple splice marks going by
6: my eyes.
5: And they were not ordinary splice marks. There were a splice mark in one frame and a subsequent frame. But what happened was they were interposing partial frames that had one-third on the top of one and two-thirds on the bottom. And then the next one would be two-thirds on the top and one-third on the bottom. So I stopped the frames and I measured the, the frames with a with ruler and did some calculations. And I said, my God, these frames that they're interposing have a proportion of 1 to 1.619, every single one of them. And I said to a friend, you know, I shared my, my knowledge with my students and very intelligent brilliant students and I brought one in his name was Mark and I said Mark look at this look at these frames and he said I said look you know I've done measurements and these measurements these segments are in a proportion of one to 1.619 and he said oh my god that's the golden ratio that's the golden mean and my eyes were open and you know what I had been having nightmares And hearing the voice saying, it's right there, you gotta see it, open your eyes, it's right there, open your eyes. But basically what they did is if they had cut the film just straight through, we would have seen the jumps, the anachronisms, the anomalies. But by interposing these partial frames, they were able to make it almost seamless. And the importance of the proportions of these partial frames that they interposed is that using the golden mean, they were able to hide the fact that they had removed 10 feet of film from the Zapruder film. They were able to hide the fact that the Zapruder film was shot in slow motion. And it's been speeded up at least three times. They were able to take out the fact that the car stopped twice. It stopped at the, uh, the sign where the president was shot he jumped up in his okay. seat. Yes, are you there? Is he there?
1: Hold on. Hold on, wait.
5: Go ahead. Anyway, it's, a, it's an optical illusion, and I was able to prove that. Now, do not believe any Zapruder films that you see on the internet today, but because since that time, they have perfected Photoshop and computer graphics, and in many cases, they have erased very, very uh, effectively those frames but if you look at the Zapruder film as it was in the 1990s and you're able to get this hard copy version you will see those frames going by the first illusion in the Zapruder film is that the car turned the corner it created this illusion by slicing the film cutting it and again using gestalt psychology the psychology of human perception Four four motorcycles appear in the opening scene. Three turn the corner on Elm Street. One goes down Houston Street. One, two, three. When the third motorcyclist is in the middle of the frame and you're looking at that motorcyclist, they cut the film and substitute another motorcyclist, which you believe is part of the escort of President Kennedy's limousine. And it tricks your eye into believing that you saw the car turn the corner. If you backtrack and do frame by frame, you'll see an empty street behind that third motorcycle policeman. And then instantly in the next frame, the whole limousine and the entourage, the the Queen Mary, as they called the second uh, car that had uh, Lyndon Johnson in it, you see them all appear, teleported into the film. So this is the technology and the technique and the psychology that they've been using to hijack your perceptions. This is one of the highest forms of mind control. Mind control can be neurolinguistic, messing with the way the words sound, with the uh, the grammar, the syntax, planting of false false uh, data that will confuse your mind as you're reading it. But this is literally hijacking your perceptions and that's what's done has been done to all of us regarding 9-11 by the time 9-11 came around they had perfected it and uh, I fell for it too it took me a long time to reconcile this uh, paradox because I believed my eyeballs and nowadays you can't believe what you see on television so that was uh, that's a very critical point to understand Not at all
0: Hey, uh, Robert. Yes. There's an email here asking me to ask you a question. It's so rare I see the email, but here we go. This is from John in California, and he said he just tuned into the show, and he heard you talking about how you saw and interacted with Mohammed Atta in 1998. He yes. He says, could you ask him to expound on the details of that interaction? Where was this? What transpired, etc. Thanks
5: okay between 1995 and 2002 i made seven trips to europe each summer i would go to england and spend time with my friends in the ancient druid order of the universal bond i attended the ceremonies at stonehenge every solstice i was allowed to sleep uh in the druid house and i was given uh (laughs) I slept in the library of the ancient Druid Order because I wanted to study um, Celtic history, and as a result, i have uh, I would make a side trip immediately afterwards to go to Hamburg to meet uh, a circle of friends that I had there have there German and Dutch friends, uh, Dutch friends like my brother. so we would get together every year after my trip to England. And I happened to go there in 1998, and a lot of these friends would visit me in New York, and I would take them flying because, uh, as, I, as you read, I have a, a private pilot's license, and I'm an instrument ground instructor, FAA certified. So I was flying from 1984 through the beginning of uh, this 21st century. So whenever my German and Dutch friends came to New York, I would take them flying. We'd take off from Essex County Airport in New Jersey, and I would take them down the Hudson River. I would make an approach to the aircraft carrier that we, we have there, the Intrepid Museum, and I would practice an approach to the landing on an aircraft carrier. And then I would break off before I got onto the fantail and then announce that I was going down to, um, to the Lady. That's what pilots call the Statue of Liberty. After circling the lady, I would climb out and head right toward the World Trade Center. And uh, all my friends uh, relished that experience. And they said, "Oh, you know, Robert's a pilot. He flies. Um, he flies in New York City." So we had this dinner with my my close friends, my German friends, my Dutch friends, and I arrived and. One of my friends said, hey, listen, this guy here is, uh he's a friend of mine. He wasn't a friend of me, not mine. He was a str- stranger to me, a German, <clears throat> scraggly-haired old, oh, vulture-looking white German. And he said, uh, his name is Sasha. And I said, man, Sasha, that's a strange name for a German. You know,
4: i associated that with Russians.
5: So we're sitting there. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, he looked up, and he gave the high sign to somebody. And I saw three guys. In leather jackets, zip-up leather jackets, short jackets. Uh, One with a tan jacket and two with black jackets, like they were uniforms. And he said, "Oh, these are my friends. You know, I told them that you're here, and they wanted to meet you." So I said, "Oh, fine." You know, but all my antennas were up because they were really strange-looking guys. One was Chinese, and two were obviously Arabs. So he introduces me to one. He comes around the table. I stand up, I shake hands with him. And he says, I said, oh, I'm Robert, <clears throat> and what is your name? He said, my name is Nicholas. When he said Nicholas, I said to myself, he, he's not a Nicholas. He does just not pronounced correctly. And he was wearing a, a beanie like the Muslims wear. And I said, and again, this is intuition. I said, old Nick, no, you're too young young Nick. Now, for those of you who don't know old Nick, old Nick is a new England term for the devil. And my gut said, old Nick. Okay. So shook hands. The guy, you know, little uh, little, a little rat faced guy sat down a couple of seats down. <clears throat> then I reached over the other guy, a bigger guy, bulkier, dark hair, big head, crossed eyes. He reached over the table to shake my hand. And when he did so, he he leaned over the table and the lamplight hit him in the face. And I shook hands with him and I said to him, I'm Robert. What is your name? And he said, my name is Muhammad. And I said, "Um, and where are you from? And he said, Persia. And my soul knew he was lying. And I'm looking at him eye to eye. And he says, Persia. And uh, my, my reaction was to scrutinize him from his eyes to his nose, right down his zipper line to his crutch, And then look back up. And he saw that look. And he became enraged. And he took my hand and he threw it as if it was a piece of dung. And I felt his hand. And it was the strangest handshake I had ever felt. I felt a hand that was all meat, no bones. It was like a snake slipping, slipping. He threw my hand away, but as I let go, it felt like a snake slipping away. Then he sat across the table from me for the rest of the night between two women that had been brought by this guy, Sasha. And those two women were really hot bombas, as the Italians call them, you know? Bombas, sex pots. And Atta was on the other side of the table, and he kept looking at me, and I looked at him.
0: And, and how, how did you know it was Muhammad Atta later?
5: if he? Oh, because I ran into him again on election day in the year 2000. I ran into him at the airport where I was flying, Essex County Airport, Caldwell Flight Academy, the same flying club where John F. Kennedy Jr. got on his last flight. Mm. And And, and
0: by the way, to our dear audience, I realized that when I asked you that question, I was muted so you could hear me and they couldn't hear me. So Robert was answering that someone had emailed asking to uh, share with us how he met Mohammed Atta, uh, John in California.
5: Oh, well, I heard you and I think he probably heard you. I don't think you were muted. I was. I just saw it. (laughs) Oh, well, okay, John, thanks for the question. I was going to get around to it. And tell you all that no one could get in an airplane just off the bat in Boston, in Cleveland, Newark, you could do it. But no one could get in an airplane in Boston, and Cleveland, and just fly an airliner into the World Trade Center. So they had to come to New York and train. And that's when I ran into all three of them. And the three of them, I mean, Mohamed Atta, who hit the uh, first tower. Marwan al-Sheehy, who hit the second tower, and Hani Hanjur, who flew into the Pentagon. Now, this operation was so well-coordinated, they really had uh, a target, right? They, they, the cabal, wanted to ensure that the damage was really significant. So they had a backup plan. The cover story is the airline hits the towers, but the reality is that wouldn't have brought them down. So the controlled demolition was the insurance for bringing them down. In Washington, the purpose was to kill the team, mostly naval intelligence officers who had been assigned to do an audit and find out where the $2.5 trillion that were lost, announced by Rumsfeld the night, the day before. So they were meeting in that section of the Pentagon that was demolished. But that's that correct, fall,
1: and I was the first researcher to bring that out, and it's in my documentary, Behind the Smoke Curtain.
5: That's why I say yours, is, yours is the best documentary anyone could ever make, because it's absolute truth from beginning to end. Now a lot of people say that no airplane hit the pentagon let me tell you the airplane hit the pentagon but it didn't hit that front wall that's the cover that's the ruse that's this, correct this airplane came in and the pentagon has five rings a b c d e and f this no, airplane it's e. excuse me
1: there's no f there's only a b c d e
5: okay a b c d e i think that there is an f but anyway it hit the roof of that last, the outer ring, and it went into the courtyard between it and the next ring. The airplane broke, broke apart, jet engines flew through other sections of, of the Pentagon. But that's why there was no wing, no tail, no place, no piece of an airliner out on the lawn. But what hit that office where that audit was going on was a missile, as you said. No, I,
1: I don't say, just a correction there. There's okay. nothing about a missile in behind the smoke curtain, nothing
5: at all. Oh, I thought that uh, that, that, well, that was part of it. Some people have misinterpreted that parking lot video to be a missile going in. but
1: well, do you just, to, just to clarify, behind the smoke curtain, which is one of my items, the, the video posted online, um, behind the smoke curtain makes the overwhelming case with evidence, of course, um, that there was a plane at the Pentagon. It was destroyed, but it did not impact the wall at the official story.
5: Plate. That's, that's right. Okay, then I stand it, it
1: was destroyed near the Healy pad f- over uh, eight minutes uh, earlier. Um, than the official story alleged impact point and about 120 to 150 feet further to the left or north along the wall.
5: Well, the reason I came to the conclusion that it had hit and was not seen was that I got a satellite photo back in 2010, 2011. I was able to find a satellite photo which showed the imprint of the airliner, its nose and its engines on that the roof of that last uh, section, the outer ring of the Pentagon. And so it concluded that it hit there, tumbled into the courtyard and broke apart inside the Pentagon. Well
1: and please send that to me. I have not seen that, Robert. Well I do I do have a question for you about your interacting with Ada, Al Shi'i, and Hondur. Now that was in Germany, correct?
5: No. Atta was in Germany in 1998. I saw Atta at the airport, Essex County Airport, in 2000, and in 2001, I I saw Hani Hanjour working on on at that airport. He was working to get uh, his flight training, and he was fueling my plane.
1: And what I, about Al When did you Al Shehhi.
5: Now, he, this is interesting. I almost knocked heads with Al Shehhi walking through a doorway. Now, John F. Kennedy Jr. crashed on J- July 16th of 1999. And it was a devastating loss to me because I, I really loved the kid, you know. And a lot of us had our hopes pinned on him in, his, in the future. So he crashes. There's this mystery. I get a call that he's crashed. I turn on the television. We have very little information. And then all of a sudden they announced that he took off that night from Caldwell Airport, and he was flying with the Caldwell Flight Academy, where I had been flying for 11 years, but I had taken off the previous year to finish my work. This is a great irony. Finish my work on the JFK assassination and the the mysteries, resolving the mysteries of the recruiter film, the JFK tip body swap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I find out, oh, my God, he was flying from the same flying club that I was in. So I decided to go back to flying in October. And it was October 12th, Columbus Day of 1999. And I went to the airport. And as I was there, getting ready for my check ride, I had to go up since I'd not flown in a year. I had to have a check ride with a, an instructor pilot. So I'm getting ready for it. And I cross. I'm going to cross into the pilot's lounge and all of a sudden like boom i, I knocked all, i really we almost hit forehead to forehead as we were both walking through the doorway uh and Neil
0: richard saying, i mean uh, uh i'm sorry robert we are at the top of the hour I'm okay sorry okay, okay. to cut you short we'll finish on the other side
5: no problem
6: the other side of midnight
2: through episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight Okay,
3: you're listening to the other side of midnight, um Our host, Conthea, seems to be muted.
5: (laughs) Well, I'm back. And so I'd like to continue
3: uh,
5: the account. Um, So I went back after John F. Kennedy Jr.'s crash. I went back on October 12th. And as I was crossing a doorway, I almost uh, bumped into... I almost knocked heads with this guy that was coming through. And we both backed off, and we looked at each other, and I saw a really goony guy with a beard and crazy hair, curly hair, and Coke bottle thick eyeglasses, and we said, excuse me, but then I looked at him and I said, that guy couldn't possibly think with eyesight like that, he couldn't possibly want to be a commercial pilot, because that's what this school taught, it taught people who don't commercial pilots. I said, that Goonie guy with Coke bottle glasses, he couldn't possibly expect to be a commercial pilot with eyesight like that. He must be a fuel monkey on the, on the ramp. Now, fuel monkey is a term of endearment <laughs> for people who work on the ramp, tow the plane, maintain it, fuel the plane, taxi it here and there. So it's, it's not a derogatory term. So then I just didn't think anything of it. So I walked over to the Piper aircraft that I was used to flying, similar to John F. Kennedy's plane, except that I had a four-seater. He flew a six-seater uh, with a lot more fancier equipment. So I get in the plane, and for those of you who don't know, when you fly a plane, you pay by the hour, and there's a sheet, a timesheet, and uh, it lists all the names of the pilots uh, who fly the plane. So when you go there, you get your plane, you sign the hob sheet, you inspect the plane to look for damage. If there's damage, you squawk it. That's the term. You squawk squawk, squawk the plane and tell, hey, this is damage. It wasn't me. I haven't flown the plane. The last guy in uh, who flew it must be responsible. So I went through the inspection. It was okay. I look at the sheet. I look and I read the names of the pilots that uh, had flown it. And I went down the list. Smith, McNally, McNulty, Al-she-hi. And I did a double take when I said, al Shahi. I said, look at that name. I've never seen a name with three H's in it and two H's are side by side. And I turned to my check right pilot and I said, hey, Matt, have you ever seen a name like that with three H's and two H's side by side? And he said, no, I haven't. And I said, al I'll bet you this is hyphenated. supposed to be hyphenated. al He's probably an Arab. And he said, yeah, okay. Boom, off we go. I do my flight test, uh, my check ride. I get my uh, my privilege to fly again. And that was that. So that was 1999. On the November 4th of the year 2000, I go there and I was flying for a reason to Connecticut to take video of a certain area where something really significant in my life had happened while flying. To make a long story short, the weather changed at 10.30 in the morning, bright sunny day. Weather came in from the east. And this is really strange because most weather goes from west to east, but this is a front. It came in from the east, and it turned the morning into night. And I split back to New York as fast as I could out running the storm. <clears throat> as I was coming in to New York, I head down the Hudson River, heading toward the airport, and I looked at the... George Washington Bridge, which was enshrouded with clouds and, and fog, and out of it came a southern airplane, a Cessna, flying directly at me, and I saw him turn at what is called the Alpine the Alpine Lookout or the Alpine Tower. And it's a reporting point. When you're going to Caldwell Airport, you say, Caldwell Tower, uh, Piper Delta Mike, uh, Piper Delta Mike coming in full stop land information kilo means you have the weather report and the winds and they give you the clearance they tell you when to come in so this Cessna comes in first and starts flying toward the airport and I'm flying with my buddy who's an air force tech sergeant and uh, always flew with me as my co-pilot when he could so I hear this voice say Colbert Tower Cessnas 210, 210 Juliet Hotel landing full stop information kilo and I said, wow, that's a strange accent. I said to myself, you know, sounds German, but the R's are too soft. So then we go in, and then I hear the voice again, saying, Goldberg Tower, uh, Cessna, 210 Julian Hotel, landing, full stop, runway two two, information kilo. And I said to myself, my God, I said, Willie. I my friend was Willie. I said, Willie, do you hear that guy's voice? really strange man you know it sounds German but the R's is too soft it's a really strange accent and um, now intuitively I I didn't say this to Willie I said that's a strange guy but whoever he is he doesn't want people to know who he is so I come in I make the landing and I start to go pay my bill and there's a line of pilots ahead of me and I look at the doorway where I almost bumped into Marwan Alshehi and these two guys are blocking the doorway and acting really bullish and they're scaring them. I'm gonna say they were scaring the shit out of everybody in the other room. They were just standing there in black leather jackets, both of them. And then I started looking at the guy, uh, one had his back to me and the other guy was facing me. I start looking at this guy and I didn't recognize him then because he'd gained about 25 pounds since 1998 but it was Muhammad Atta. So I didn't like what they were doing. You know, they were bullying everyone. They were blocking the doorway intentionally. And so I said to Willie, I'm going to burn this guy. Watch. So I started staring at his eyes until he noticed. And then he looked that I was staring at him and he gave me
4: a grimace,
5: a really hostile grimace. And he picked up his headset and showed it to me like, uh, I'm here with the bus, you know, I can stand here. And I, I looked at him and I said, hey, Willie, these guys are playing games. So I'm going to go, I'm going to bump these guys, get them out of the doorway. So I left him online, waiting to pay him my bill. And I went over to the doorway and the guy had, who had his back to me was a guy that I really detested. He was an Eastern European Slav instructor pilot who'd become the chief pilot in this place that had always been Western European pilots uh, predominantly. But in the year and a half that I was gone, something happened at that airport. And all the good guys disappeared. And I came back and the whole place was taken over, infiltrated by a bunch of Eastern European nasty, rude, officious pilots and pilot instructors and the worst one was this guy Zoltan his name is Zoltan so he and I met and we didn't like each other from the get go so I go by he's the guy who's talking to Atta uh, and Atta was the guy who had just landed so I go by him and I bumped him and I said excuse me I gotta get by here so they got out of the way they got out of the doorway I went to the men's room washed up came back, and when I was coming back, they were blocking the doorway again. I said, I'm going to have fun with these guys. So, Otto was a big, broad guy with a gigantic head. So, I crouched down and snuck up behind me, behind him, so that the guy in front of him, Zoltan, couldn't see me, the guy that detested me, and I detested him. So, I snuck up behind, crouching behind Otto. His body was really big and blocked my view. When I was right behind him, I popped up my head behind Ada and I slid my head sideways and showed my face to Zoltan. Zoltan freaked out. His eyes bugged out. He slapped his hands to his side. He clicked his heels like he went to attention. And with his eyes, he gestured to Ada, watch out. That's him. So as I went by, I saw him nod his head. Yeah, that's him. And this gut feeling said to me, Robert, don't fly here at all again this winter. These guys are dangerous. And I've never had a feeling
3: like that. Ever. Okay, enough.
1: Robert? Yes? yes. Yeah, I have two burning questions. You told me this uh, this whole sequence before, but I wasn't able to formulate these questions before. But they're two really important ones. You saw Audit twice. Once yes. Germany and then again um on november 4th of 2000 yes uh, are you sure it was the same person absolutely
5: without a doubt okay I, I, don't nobody don't find it forget him except
4: he gain weight
1: okay so my next question is i believe his name is willie but one of your very closest friends yes um introduced you to Mohammed Ada in germany no
5: no, no 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 willie was not in germany
1: well, somebody use your-
5: no, you got No, 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 no. You didn't listen closely enough. Okay. I had Dutch friends and I had German friends, and they were hosting me in in Hamburg. Yeah. It, Willie was nowhere to be seen. Well, whoever. And whoever. Somebody no, he. My friend did not introduce me to Ada. He brought somebody to the table, a stranger to me. Then that guy was the guy who invited Ada to the table.
3: And right. the reason they
5: came to the table was. Hold on, hold on a second. Yeah. The reason they came to the table was they heard that I flew in New York. And what they wanted to find out was where could they learn how to fly? So they found out from me that I flew at Essex County Airport. Okay. Oh, I
1: understand. So you so it was a coincidence this Chinese guy overheard your conversation?
5: No, no, the Chinese. Now, the Chinese guy, this is important. Three guys showed up. One guy said his name was Nicholas. He was lying. Mohammed Atta said he was Persian. He was lying. And the third one was a Chinese guy with the same kind of black leather jacket. Okay, wow. He's going to come up again. His name is He Lo because I went back to Hamburg in 2002 looking for Nicholas and looking for the Chinese guy.
1: Okay, I, but how did the Chinese guy know to come to your table?
5: He was with Mohammed Atta and Ramzi ben al Barbara, the head of Al-Qaeda... Ramzi Ben al in Hamburg, in a Hamburg cell, came to my table with Mohammed Atta and this Chinese guy, who was later described to me as a Chinese Taliban, when I tracked him down in 2002. Well, I
1: understand all this. Why did he come to your, why did he come to your table?
5: To try to fish for information on how to learn to fly in America and where was I flying around yes, New York? Yes,
1: I, I heard you say that. How, would, how did they know to ask you
3: to do that?
5: Because the German guy named Sasha was their friend. And this guy was an idiot. You know, they befriended him. And he was the son of a German uh, president of a cargo airline named Atlantis Airline. So they had befriended him, unbeknownst to him. Because okay,
1: so you knew the German guy, Sasha?
5: What's the link? No, I met him that night. By chance? yeah by chance i didn't invite him i didn't know him so you were at a table by yourself and no i was i told you i was surrounded by german and dutch friends okay and one, so
1: the german guy sasha came up to the table with you and your german and dutch friends yes so so the german guy sasha must have known one of the other yes of your friends at the table. yes
5: one of my friends unwittingly uh you know said i'm gonna be with robert at uh worker's bar tonight and so they came over took advantage of it
1: okay so so which one of your friends was the link
5: I'm not going to tell you that because no. he, he was innocent he, he wasn't part of it he was just used
1: well I
5: I don't know well you don't and I do okay, okay so let me go on so what happened is that um when I went back in the spring, all and now, with, first let's go back to 1999 and uh, 2000, I went back to investigate John F. Kennedy's crash, and I started to find some very fishy business. I studied the crash, I saw the accident report that said pilot error, I looked at all of the data, I read it thoroughly, and I came to the conclusion that these guys had sabotaged this plane. But that conclusion came after I went back in 2001 and I started to have trouble with my airplane. I had flown there for 11 years and never had a problem with the airplane. Then I took five flights, the radios were jimmied with, the controls were wired. They gave me an airplane that had a half flat tire and an empty wing tank and you just can't believe it that somebody's trying to sabotage this here's now here's the way, this is when i really woke up i had i was doing very well and i had clients that would uh hire me to go and teach uh, tai chi and yoga so i had uh, a friend who invited me to go to the hamptons and i thought oh this is cool i'll rent a plane i'll fly out to the hamptons i'll teach the course i'll stay overnight and then i'll fly back so i go to the airport and I get to the airplane, and I was going to leave at about 6 o'clock in the evening. But when I got into the airplane, I started having trouble with the radios. So I went and I squawked the plane. I said, you know, the radios aren't working well on this plane. And that guy, Zoltan, said, oh, no, no, I flew that plane. It's perfect. Let me, we go. And so we went and tested it. He took my He took my headset, and there are two jacks, and he sticks them in, and he starts listening and trying to communicate with it and i'm hearing the crackling and the static and he's going oh that's very good it's very good then he starts yanking on the wire and i said you know i think this son of a bitch is trying to wreck my my headset and then he goes no no it the radio is working very well and you should go you should go and i say you know this guy is trying to make me go out into the night with bad radios when he knows that we need the radios to turn on the lights at this airport that I'm going to. For those of you who don't know, if you're going to um, an unmonitored airport, airport that doesn't have a tower, uh, when you get there at night, it has a, a radio uh, frequency that you can click your mic. If you click your mic once, twice, you get medium. If you click your mic three times, you get high intensity light. So. If my radio and my uh, headset aren't working correctly and the radios are flawed, I'd get out to the airport at night. I'd click it and nothing would happen. The lights wouldn't come on and I would auger in. So I said to the guy, no, I don't think so. uh, I think I'll come back tomorrow morning. I I won't go out tonight. He goes, no, you should go. You should go. And I said, man, this guy's really trying to make me go out into the night with a Floyd airplane. So the next day I go out there, I pick up the plane in the morning, I fly out, and it's a pretty nice day. And all of a sudden I'm flying, and I said to myself, you know, the weather's turned really bad. I can't see the ground, and uh, I'm flying, you know, level, and I can't see the ground. And I'm looking around, and then I look up, and I saw a boat going across the sky. And I said, holy mackerel, I'm upside down.
6: And I said, oh, my
5: God. And the instruments were telling me I was flying right side up. And then this voice says, Robert, put the plane backward, put the boat back where it belongs. Because, you know, in the instrument flying, they always tell you, always believe your instruments. Always believe your instruments. And I, that thought came to me, but that inner voice said, Robert, Put the boat backward below. So I rolled the plane, and the boat went down. And now it's on Long Island Sound. I'm going, holy mackerel! And as I rolled the plane, the um, horizontal situation indicator stayed flat, straight, and level. No change. And I said, "Oh my God, what a messed up plane I've got today." And on the way back, the radios practically failed, and I was able to make a landing. So I thought, I
0: wonder. I'm wondering if that happened uh,
5: with Kennedy's plan.
3: Absolutely.
5: That's I'm going to tell you the whole story. So, <laughs> so that happens. And then, you know, the denial is, is really a, a self-destructive instinct. You can't believe it. I can't believe these guys. Well, they were doing it. And then the fifth time I went up, I took off right away. My radios failed and the plane started porpoising. That's when it's going up and down, you know, you climb up, and because you couldn't, couldn't trim the trim uh, the trim tab on the tail, on the stabilizer. And in order to reduce the forces to fly the plane, you can trim a wheel, it's called a trim wheel, and you roll it and it applies uh, another vein to, give, to relieve the pressure. Well, I looked down and the thing was wired. And I go, holy mackerel. So I started making circles. I couldn't communicate by radio. So I started making circles around the, near the airport, which is what you're supposed to do when you're having trouble. I could hear the tower, but they couldn't hear me because I couldn't transmit. And they said, Piper, Ducks, to Mike, if you're having trouble, uh, come in for a landing on uh, runway 22. And I saw a green light. So he gave me the green light and I came in and I landed and then I was really pissed. So I squawked the plane and I squawked the uh, situation. And then my, my medical was coming up. You know, you have to take a medical every year or every two years, depending on your uh, classification. So I go see my doctor, my FAA medical examiner, and I'm getting tested, my eyesight's fine, he can't believe how good it is, and
6: you know, I'm in good
5: shape. And then he says to me, hey, Bob, well, Bob, how are things going? And this voice says to me, well, Robert, if you can't tell your doctor, who can you tell? I said, well, Doc, it's not going too well. He goes, what? He said, well, Doc, I think these guys are trying to kill me. What? Yeah, I've had five instances with this airplane I never had problems before, and it's a very shady, fishy business here, Uh, They got these uh, Middle Eastern guys working on the on the tarmac. The guys are all Slavs, where it used to be Western Europeans, they're really weird and nasty. And he said, where are these guys from? And I said, well, this main guy, Zoltan, he's a fishy guy, he's told some people that he was Hungarian, but then he told me he was Czechoslovakian. And when I was flying with this guy, I always used to take a camera with me, a video camera, because I like to video my flights and relive them. One day I turned the camera on him in the cockpit and he put his hand over the camera and he said, no pictures, no pictures. And my friend Willie was with me and we looked at each other and like, what the, what's wrong with this guy? And we looked at him. Oh, Richard Gage is here. So we looked at him and he said to me, then I was in Czechoslovakia, I took many pictures of many people, and I do not like pictures of me taking. And I said to myself, yeah, you know why? Because you were a fucking Stasi, KGB rat, and you were taking pictures to turn people in. And that's when I sided the guy up. And I'll, I'll continue the story later. Richard is here. And
4: so, welcome, Richard.
1: Hey, Richard, huh? you made it.
4: <laughs> well, goodness gracious. We wow, had trouble, lots and lots of trouble.
0: Yeah. Well, so I'd like to briefly introduce Richard Gage to our audience. He's from the uh, AIA architect, has joined the Lawyers Committee for 911 Inquiry Board of Directors, and also serves as technical advisor. Richard comes to the Lawyers Committee after 15 years as the founder and CEO of Architects and Engineers for 911 Truth. In addition to being the LC's first onboard technical expert with his wealth of architectural experience and in-depth knowledge of the forensic facts regarding WTCs 1, 2, and 7, he will be partnering on a new cutting-age 9-11 documentary film series, 9-11. From Crime Scene to Courtroom, didn't that just come out? Uh, the first well, episode, yes. Yeah. A little piece of it. Yeah. Okay. And he's joining uh, other board members for radio interviews and public appearances. Welcome to the other side of midnight, Richard. So good to have you with us again.
4: Thank you, Cynthia. It's my honor to be here and I'm sorry we flubbed it up and got here late.
0: Well, we're just grateful to have you. You know, technology has its way of doing its dance. (laughs) Yes,
4: it does. It's a dance. By the way,
0: Richard, um, I'm going to, um, this is the last thing I'm going to
1: say because it's your show now. Um, What you just missed, and you're going to have to talk to Robert Morningstar, who's on now, been uh, regaling us for about the past 45 minutes or an hour with how he personally, personally met Muhammad Atta, Al-Sheehy, and,
4: and I missed all that?
1: You missed it all.
4: Oh, my God.
1: But there is a recording you will get.
4: If I may. Wow. Hi, Robert. Hi, Richard.
5: With your indulgence, I'd like to just finish up and, and give you the rest of the show. Please. I tried to, the doctor, my FAA medical examiner said, Robert, you've got to go to the FBI and you've got to go to the United Nations. These guys are probably Yugoslavian war criminals or somebody that escaped. And so... I tried to contact, I did contact the FBI on August 9th of 2001. I got a good FBI guy who believed my story. Remember the towers were still up and all I had was like, I think these guys killed John F. Kennedy Jr. They sabotaged his plane. They rigged his his plane. So I wrote to John Ashcroft, the attorney general. I called the FBI. I called the FAA. I called the Immigration and Actualization Service And for a whole month, I tried to get them to go to New Jersey and check out these guys. But the turf war broke out between New Jersey and New York and the New Jersey guys didn't want to bother because New York was telling them, hey, go check out these guys at the airport. And uh, long story short, it came and went. I did everything in my power through September 10th. The towers came down on the 11th. And the following week, the pictures of Mohammed Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, Hani Hanjour, and the fourth guy came out. And I called the FBI and I said, you remember those guys I told you about? Those are the three guys that hit the towers and hit the Pentagon. And if you'd gone there, you would have snapped them up. But wow. this convinces me. This convinces me that they knew it was coming and they wanted it to happen so that that i will leave you and richard another time i can give you all the details uh personally so uh thank you and the show is yours
4: (laughs) thank you robert great to meet you look forward to connecting again yes indeed
0: And I just gave instructions to skip the bottom of the hour break. We can't ever skip the top of the hour, but we can skip the bottom of the hour. So I want to give you as much time as possible, Richard.
4: Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, many people don't know still that there was a third skyscraper that collapsed on 9-11. And if you haven't discussed that in detail, I would like to share that inter- that very interesting information with our listeners.
0: Please go ahead.
4: Okay, then. Because I was shocked uh, to learn, actually, on March 29, 2006, uh, after hearing the uh, – we'll turn on the radio on the way back from the construction observation meeting – and here was this elderly gentleman being interviewed by Bonnie Faulkner on the guns and butter program on KPFA in Berkeley in the San Francisco Bay area. And boy, uh, that turned my life around. I I'm just saying, did, you know, did you know a third tower came to know, I would know if the third tower excuse me, I'm an architect. This is, this is what we do. We, 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 we understand and we follow the, the 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 worst structural failures in modern history. This being the third worst after the Twin Towers. So yeah, this building, after witnesses hear explosions, it drops like a rock straight down, uniformly, symmetrically into its own footprint. Now this is at 5:20 in the afternoon. So, the twin towers had come down seven hours earlier, and so people were hearing explosions in the afternoon, particularly uh Barry Jennings well, this was the morning he he walked he went into this building, Mayor Giuliani's attorney michael hess, and he had been they had been called to an emergency meeting because the towers had been hit by planes, but they hadn't fallen yet, so he's on his way. Uh, they are on their way up to the 23rd floor where the emergency operations center is or was and they, they nobody's in the building they didn't realize it had been evacuated because they got there late uh, to this meeting and then uh, they're trying to get out of the building and there's explosions going off in the building before the towers ever come down and there's explosions going off Uh, He said the side of the building was gone, uh, and the the stairwell blew up beneath them, blew them back up into the eighth floor. Uh, They're just terrorized by all of these explosions. Well, what are explosions doing, going off in this building seven? This is extraordinary, and uh, they are direct witnesses of these explosions inside the building. And and sure enough. uh, they got out uh, about. After, they finally got out. It was after the towers had, had come down, I believe, and possibly before. Correct me if I'm wrong, Barbara. Um, and then uh, they uh, they tell the FBI uh, all about their experiences. and The FBI told them, "No, you got to run. There's more information of bombs in the building. You got to get out of here." Uh, so whoa, Uh, the FBI is giving this this inconclusive information, uh, which is completely contradictory to the official narrative of this building's collapse, which says that no normal office fires brought this building down. Well, guess what? Normal office fires have never brought down a steel frame fire protected building in history ever. It's just never happened. Uh, So Uh, it's completely unprecedented, in fact. Uh, And so NIST proceeds to try to, in their final report, uh, purport that this building, there's no explosions. They just deny all the witnesses of explosions, and there's many more. Uh, Flashes of light were seen uh, by Bill Rosati. Uh, He's interviewed on, on mainstream television. There's there's foreknowledge of the building's collapse in, in the form of, the well, one, these mysterious construction workers walking away from the building, hearing an explosion over their shoulder, looking back at the building and then looking straight into the CNN camera and saying, you hear that? That building's coming down, flame and debris coming down. The building's going to blow up. But wait a minute. No steel frame building had ever collapsed from fire alone, ever. Uh, and if these guys know that the building is coming down, this is extraordinary also. And the BBC announces the collapse of this steel frame fireproofed building 20 minutes before it ever comes down. They apologize for this grievous error citing the confusing events of the day well what does that make them psychic what's really going on here do they get the script early that they were supposed to deliver 20 minutes later uh it's it's incredible uh and they did these left these breadcrumbs of truth uh, throughout all of 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 the events of that day and the and the reporting and even in the uh the nist report itself because shaum sunder of nist first denied uh up up till about 2007 that the building came down at free fall acceleration well what does that mean it's it's falling as fast as a bowling ball falling out of the sky which means what that Uh, every one of the 81 columns in this building gave absolutely no resistance to the collapse of this building. Not one of them. And columns have amazing reserve strength. Even when they're bending over, they have 25% or so of their original capacity. Uh, it's, It's amazing material. So we know that the building can't fall as fast as if there were no columns in it when there were were in fact 81 columns in it and designed three to five times stronger than they ever needed to be to hold that building up. So you, you can see the building uh, fall, just go to our website, richardgage911.org. That's Richard Gage, G-A-G-E, 911.org. And you can see on the right side there, Building 7 coming down. It looks exactly like the old hotels in Las Vegas. In fact, you can't tell the difference at all. It's, it's just precisely uh, just that. But the real evidence, the forensic evidence, uh, the, 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 uh, the video evidence is astonishing but the forensic evidence is even more so actually, Uh, because what we find in the aftermath of this building's collapse is incredible pyroclastic-like clouds uh, issuing laterally out of this building's collapse at 35 miles an hour, racing down the street in every direction from the building. This is uh, part of the World Trade Center 100 yards north of, this, of the uh, North Tower, uh, and it, it, it was indeed hit by a few of the beams that came from the North Tower, but NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, says in their final report that, they, uh, that, that this damage was not a significant factor in the building's collapse. They say it was the fires and specifically the fires in the northeast section of the building and uh, fires around Column 79 in particular. And this has a whole collapse initiation theory based on their computer modeling that uh, the fire was so hot, uh, even though the fires are shown to be few, small, and scattered throughout Richard, the building. Richard,
1: yeah. It's Barb. Um, Robert Morningstar must now tell you something. He claims that he, and I believe him, um, he claims that he actually heard on Fox News live a voice saying, pull it, just before Building 7 came down. I did not know that. Did you?
5: That's no, a, that's, that's, that's new over- information. That's absolutely true. Wow.
1: And if and you can, he has a recording, he's going to try to find a it. Yeah,
5: there. they're really deeply buried in storage. Uh, you know, it's 22 years. But if I can access them, you can have it all. Because I started throwing video tapes into my recorder. I recorded uh, all of the day, September
3: 11th,
5: all of September 12th, all on Fox News. And God is my witness. I was watching, I saw Building 7 there before me, and they were talking about it, and I heard the voice, I believe it was Larry Silverstein, uh, who was the owner, uh, I heard the voice say, pull it, and boom, it came now, out.
1: was that on 9-11 itself, or was that when he went on PBS later and
5: talked no, about it? No, no, it? no, 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 no. This was live. Ah. seconds before Building 7 came down.
1: My God, Richard, we have to get there. I
5: heard him say, I heard the voice say, pull it. One more thing to share with you. Do you know what was in Building 7 at the bottom in the vault? All of the gold
4: in the New York Federal Reserve was being held in Building 7.
1: Are you sure it was in Building 6 or
4: 4? Building 6 was the Treasury Department, and we know... That's that, that. There was gold being held there, and that they had yeah. a significant vault down in the basement. And there's no basement under Building Seven. Yeah, I, was, I think
5: oh, we're thinking oh, of Building Six. I was told that it was in Building Seven, and that uh, part of the heist was when they ex,
4: uh, you know, removed all the debris. They were able to get a lot of it.
1: I think so, there was Building Six.
4: Okay. Yeah, 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 That one we have to correct you on. <laughs> okay. Thank but, you. Uh, yeah, Bill uh, Larry Silverstein was interviewed on PBS t- um, uh, a year after 9/11 and it's called America rebuilds and they're interviewing him and he says well uh, uh, yeah I was talking to the fire commander and and uh, maybe maybe this there's been such terrible loss of life maybe the smartest thing to do is pull it and so they gave the order to pull and we watched the building come down of course that's that created uh,
5: that's why' huh? That's why I say it was his voice. It seemed like the boss said, pull it.
4: Uh Interesting.
1: I can help there because if you can find that tape, um, I have used before the world famous forensic uh, videotape audio analyst who did the audio uh, analysis, the digital audio analysis of the Rodney King tape and um, I've used him many times he can enhance the quality and if you have even another example of Larry Silverstein's voice which we have many from other uh, audio or videotapes we have with audio he can match them and he can say if it's the same voice
3: well
4: well that would be great <clears throat> yeah let's find that Robert if if, if possible that, that that would be huge
1: it would be huge, Robert. I can't begin to
4: tell you. <clears throat> Well, the the evidence in the aftermath of of Building Seven is equally extraordinary uh, because uh, we have um, n- not just the pyroclastic like clouds that are expanding rapidly in cauliflower shaped uh, forms due to the incredible heat uh, from Whatever brought that building down, and the National Fire Protection Association Guide 921 says, look for uh, pyroclastic like clouds, uh, uh, cauliflower-shaped forms uh, due to the, the heat from these, the, the gases, from the explosives. Uh, in this case, uh, there, there's only a few small scattered fires. In fact, maybe just one by the time this building come, came down. Uh, but the fires were largely out and they would have been extinguished by the mechanical action of the collapsing floors. So the the heat was not coming from those fires. Uh, There's something much hotter that we're looking for and indeed uh, it's found. Um, The first responders describe uh, molten lava flowing uh, like lava, the the molten steel flowing like lava. Uh, And the, the... which is incredible in and of itself, uh, but the NASA overflights uh, uh, picking up a, a week later, in, in, uh, on the surface of the pile of Building Seven, temperatures exceeding thirteen hundred forty degrees. That's as hot Fahrenheit. That's as hot as the hottest office fires uh, can get to, in 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 most all office fires so but there's no fire on the surface of the pile which is what they're measuring they're they're, so they're measuring something much hotter way deeper down in the pile that's being cool that's cooling off as it reaches the surface of the pile so what is that well we understand what that is very clearly from FEMA itself who hands to us on a silver platter the evidence of extreme heat in the form of hot temperature corrosion attack this is their metallurgical examination that they included in their appendix c of their building performance assessment team report in may of 2002 they they, they actually documented for for a silver dollar size holes in the steel uh, created by a hot sulfur corrosion attack with liquid molten iron invading the grain boundaries of the steel. Well, molten iron is 3,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Well, 2,800, it begins to melt Fahrenheit. And, and, uh, but it's gotta be even hotter than that to be flowing and cutting through steel. Uh, in fact, Jonathan Barnett, the, one of the authors of this Appendix C uh, metallurgical examination of Building 7 Steel and Twin Tower Steel, uh, says that the ends of the beams were partly evaporated in extraordinarily high temperatures. Well, this is incredible. It takes 4,000 degrees evaporate steel where can those temperatures come from I mean can it be explained yeah it can be explained Uh, thermite is an incendiary used by the military to cut through steel like a hot knife through butter Uh, it issues 4,000 degree temperatures so it issues what else molten iron that FEMA said was invading the grain boundaries of the steel it's designed to cut through steel and destroy steel. So is there evidence of thermite <clears throat> other than the evidence that FEMA provided to NIST who took over the investigation after their after they were done with their temporary investigation? NIST threw out the entire metallurgical examination all this evidence of melted steel when they produced their final report Seven years later, in 2008, uh, they, they, they just threw it out. They threw out the witnesses, numerous witnesses of explosion. They threw out the evidence of hot temperature corrosion attack on the steel. Um, but uh, they, well they also didn't include any of the evidence found and documented very carefully by the U.S. Geological Survey and R.J. Lee, an environmental consulting group, who independently did analysis on the dust, extensive analysis. What did they find? Billions of previously molten iron microspheres. All three of those are independently evidence of thermite. Previously molten, meaning They were molten, uh, meaning 3,000-degree temperatures Fahrenheit. There's no accounting in the official narrative whatsoever of temperatures that hot. In fact, the office fires probably didn't get a quarter of those temperatures and couldn't have gotten half those temperatures. So previously molten. Then iron. We haven't used iron in our skyscrapers for 100 years. Where does this iron, elemental iron, come from? Pure iron, well, it's not coming from the steel. Uh, It's not coming from the, from the, uh, the framing system. Well, iron is the byproduct of thermite. Microspheres, where do they come from? Well, under explosive conditions, liquid molten iron would be aerosolized under that pressure, and it would form itself in the spheres. Uh, this is what just what aerosolized liquids do with uh, surface tension uh, on, on the aerosolized uh, droplets. They form themselves into the spheres and they cool and they fall onto everything around them. In that case, uh, including cars parked all around the World Trade Center, the tops of which are toasted. So what in the official narrative can possibly explain that in this very high heat event? Um, Not nothing, nothing at all, but the evidence provided to us by USGS, US Geological Survey, RJ Lee and FEMA all provides the picture and proves the hypothesis of destruction Uh, By incendiaries attacking, for instance, the columns and beams where they needed to be. And the steel was not saved and preserved so forensic analysts could get their hands on it and do a proper forensic investigation. No, it was just starting just two weeks after 9-11. The steel was carted away from Building 7 uh, and put on barges sent to China for recycling. This is the illegal destruction of evidence in a crime scene. Richard? Yeah.
1: Yeah. um, So this is just absolutely compelling and overwhelming evidence, of course, that World Trade Center 7 was brought down by a classic controlled demolition. Can you link that, though, to the Twin Towers?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Because all of that evidence that we just described is also in the Twin Towers and around the Twin Towers. But let's start with the behavior. We'll start with the official narrative, which tells us that the upper section of these buildings, above the point of jet plane impacts, drives the rest of the building down to the ground and then destroys itself. Well, there's a few problems with that narrative, as you can imagine, The upper part of the building is the lightest, the weakest part. The steel is only three-eighths thick, some of it, uh, and uh, versus halfway down, it's two inches thick, right? And in much larger sections, the core columns are 30 inches by 16 inches. And then down at the bottom, the core columns, 47 massive core columns, 52 inches, by 22 inches and almost solid steel so you're not going to have this lightweight it's like a running a volkswagen into a mac truck and expecting the volkswagen to crush the mac truck it's just not going to happen and if you tilt them up and you drop the volkswagen onto the mac truck it doesn't make any difference it doesn't have the power uh the the, the energy to to destroy it And it it violates Newton's third law, which says when two bodies collide, there's an equal and opposite destructive force on those bodies. So uh, you'd have uh, the Volkswagen, for instance, being crushed completely before it probably even crushes the front bumper of the uh, Mack truck. So, in fact, that's exactly what we see if you go to RichardGage911.org and you pull up the – Uh, documentary 9-11 Explosive Evidence Experts Speak Out Uh, you see the upper part being destroyed itself in the first three seconds it's not crushing the building beneath it whatsoever it's being destroyed it's telescoping down after that what we see is Laterally discharged, freely flying, structural steel sections weighing four and eight tons each, laterally at 80 miles an hour, blocked by physicists, landing 600 feet in every direction outside the towers, hundreds of them impaling themselves in skyscrapers all around them. This is not a gravitational collapse mechanism. We're seeing uh, upward, outward arching streamers, a geometry of fireworks, uh, uh, solid objects uh, trailed by thick white smoke clouds. That's what the Twin Towers destruction looks like. And what are these thick white smoke clouds anyway? steel sections are not flammable in office fire conditions. Why are they trailing thick white smoke clouds? Well, the ends of these beams have to be burning with this material, uh, this thermite that we were just seeing all of this evidence of. Well, here's more evidence, in fact. And then we have Actually, before the towers ever start to collapse, we we have a hundred and fifty six first responders, now one hundred and eighty six, which I was shocked to learn. Uh, Professor Graham McQueen read twelve thousand pages of testimony and found that a total of one hundred eighty six uh, witnesses, first responders, firefighters, professional expert witnesses in their fields um in their field talking about explosions being blown around the building by explosions hearing explosions seeing explosions this is an uh, incredible testimony and guess what M- many of these are before the towers ever collapse very specific order of events that they're talking about in fact one of them says and then there seemed to be a momentary delay before you could see the beginning of the collapse. That, that's after he heard the explosions. So he's, they're all very specific. One another says, wrapping around the building, all around the building like a belt, all these explosions. So, Richard, yeah.
1: Yeah, i just like to add here, many people either don't know or have forgotten But those 186, and they're they're recorded, um, officially recorded testimonies by the firefighters, first responders, those 186 eyewitnesses to sounds and experience of explosions in the towers in World Trade Center 7, that doesn't even count the 343 firefighters who died from those explosions in the towers.
4: Ah, so they're, in effect, witnesses.
1: Yes, I think so.
4: Wow, um yeah, I would like their testimony um, that that that's that's interesting um There's three three minutes to go oh okay, so underneath this canopy of laterally ejected structural steel sections are squibs or isolated explosive ejections, twenty stories down, forty stories down, even sixty stories down below uh just geometrically precise uh, puffs, they're not puffs of air like NIST calls them they're explosively ejected solid objects which are again are clocked by physicists at 150 to 200 feet per second but then if if molten iron microspheres are evidence of thermite, ignited thermite uh, and it can only be that, is there any evidence of unignited thermite in the world trade center dust. And oh yeah, there is a team of eight international scientists led by Niels Herrit in Copenhagen find in all the the samples they did, seven independently collected samples, these red uh chips, dual layered actually, red and gray chips. They're attracted by a magnet. They get real curious because it has a high iron content. So they do X-ray energy dispersive spectroscopy and find what iron oxide and aluminum powder the ingredients of thermite in these paint chips about a 16th of an inch large the largest of them and so they get real curious and they zoom in 50,000 times and they find uh uh, uh, nano-sized particles of iron oxide and aluminum powder uh this is incredible they're finding nano thermite which had been developed prior to 9-11 and all this documented in the 25-page peer-reviewed paper in the Bentham Open Chemical Physics Journal. It's all there. We know exactly how the towers were came down. There's no question. And we could put a lot of people away for crimes of mass murder and treason.
1: And we intend to.
4: And we'll do At it with 9-11 Crime Scene to Courtroom, the film that we're in the middle of making.